commies, Kardashians and cosmic rays, welcome to another edition of Marvel vs. Marvel. The podcast where a Marvel movie fan re-watches the MCU and the Marvel movies and quizzes a Marvel comic book fan about all the differences and the similarities between the comic books and the movies themselves. Hello and welcome to the Fantastic Four episode. My name is Rob Holden, comedian, writer and uh, raconteur. And I am the uh, what you might call the expert part of the equation. I've been reading Marvel comic books for over 30 years. I'm the one that will be quizzed and held to account when I get things wrong. Which doesn't ever, ever happen, despite how many emails we get about it. And I'm joined... On the podcast by the man that makes it all possible. He's powered by ignorance. It's Mr. Will Preston. Hello, Will. Hello, it's Will Preston here. Comedian, geek, gamer. Uh, I, I was going to say something. What, there was something you said earlier. I was going to come up with an opposite to it. But I forgot. Maybe because of the power of ignorance. Who knows? <laughs> it's power well, of ignorance at work again. I don't know what the opposite of a raconteur is. Tyrone no, you said something. Was, you, you, but, you said something else, and I was too uh, busy looking at how attractive I am in the webcam and forgot. Forgot. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, you're having a very good day, mate. I mean, I don't know what you've been doing recently. No. The moisturising and the polishing of the dome. Whatever's happening, it's working. It's firing on all cylinders. Um, I, I feel like a lucky girl to have this view. So I, I don't. I don't blame you for being distracted. <laughs> Um, there we go, and we're 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 back with another episode of uh, Marvel versus Marvel, which has been going so well recently to the point that Ooh, we yes. were on local BBC radio in the last seven days, which has been incredibly fun. We were highlighted on yeah. BBC Radio uh, Derby as something to something fun to listen to during lockdown even though lockdown kind of isn't really happening anymore um so that was awesome <laughs> let's give a big shout out to comedian alex leem who is connected with bbc radio derby and they asked him what awesome things is he watching and listening to at the moment and he said this podcast which is so cool yeah that it was, was really great good. to hear ourselves on that wasn't it they played a yeah. clip of the show and talked about how, how, how much fun it was. Although, I must say, the presenter of that show, like, he obviously hadn't listened to the ep- to any episodes. <laughs> and he he did a nasal tone and said, oh, is it is it like, oh, are they geeky? Are they like, oh, are they like comic book guy from Simpsons? And so, yeah, I've been sending him a lot of flaming poo bags in the last week, uh, just to get back at him for that um because i like to think we are the opposite of comic comic book guy in simpsons is a gatekeeper right yep he's, he's, he's a sarcastic gatekeeper. gatekeeper and what do we say around here will what's our catchphrase we say no gatekeeping damn right hashtag and no gatekeeping we're not about that we're about accepting everyone into the world of marvel However you got here, however you found us, um, and when I say us, I mean Marvel, <laughs> which we are not associated. We need to stamp that one out right here and now. And that's the joy <laughs> of it. Will, I- I- I've been reading comic books for 35 years. Let us know, man, how many Marvel comics have you read in your lifetime? My lifetime? 
Oh, big fat zero. Zero comic books. And that's the two ends of the spectrum, the two prongs of the fork, <laughs> the two-pronged fork, and that's kind of like what, <laughs> what we're all about. It's about trying to, to make these things accessible to everyone and to try and explore some of the weird, wild and wonderful aspects of Marvel Comics that have been knocking around since, let's say, the 1960s until you go and listen to a Captain America episode, in which case we've got to go back even further. We've... Uh, yeah, had some have some fun recently, and we we talked about um, getting getting more out of the two of us. And of course, no one gives more to their audience than Willie P. He he's dishing it out three times a week on that <laughs> their Twitch stream. Uh, Will, you're on the Twitch Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, six p.m. on the G, the M, and the T. Check local listings for what that means for where you live, um, and you're gaining steam each and every uh, each and every month. What have you been up to in the last uh, fourteen days since we've checked in with the Twitch? It's it's been pretty good. I mean, uh, it has uh, we have had a slump because it's August. August is the uh, summer holidays. As we all know, the August so there is slump. a bit of a slump with Twitch. Oh yeah, the August slump. But I'm still getting people in. Uh, recently, started playing the special edition of Skyrim, which is something I Ooh. never really get involved with. It's it's swords and dragons and magic, and I prefer science fiction, guns and zombies. And it's like, I, are you are you one of those geeks that like looks down on like a like a slightly different section of geekdom? Are you like, oh, swords and dragons? Come oh. on, guys, that's not aliens and laser beams. <laughs> I can't. You I, are, I, aren't I you? Look, I can see it in your I face. I don't look down at it, but I go, oh no, no thank. Although I do have to say, I will say, I did enjoy the director's cuts of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, or the extended cuts. I did enjoy those. I did like those, but yeah, I, I've been I've been skyrimming it. I've been doing a bit of this, bit of that on there. Just different games, different different bits of banter. Coming out with material every now and again for stand up comedy, which was quite quite interesting. Every now and again, I say so, something uh, funny while pl- shooting a zombie. I mean, you can't get any better now. I would much rather every stand up I see uh, be accompanied by a video of shooting a zombie. Um, and, and how can we get access to the wonderful aspects of your brain and follow you on the Twitch Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays? How do we go about doing that, Will? You just need to log in to twitch.tv and, and you can find me at twitch.tv slash willpreston87. Highly, highly recommend you do that and get more from the man who is powered by ignorance um, although I think in that in that in that side of things you're not powered by ignorance, you're powered by let's say knowledge. I want Maybe. I want to say that Twitch streamers have a lot of knowledge, but one of the most famous streamers is PewDiePie, so I'm gonna go with ignorance. <laughs> um you can grab a little bit more of uh, my good self if you fancy doing something like that. I'm appearing it will broadcast on Friday night, the twenty eighth. Um but I'll be appearing in Radio 4, BBC Radio 4's summer uh, comedy festival series, The Festival of the Unexpected. And that'll be available on the BBC iPlayer or the BBC Sounds app from the 28th of August onwards. 
Festival of the Unexpected. I'll be playing Rowdy Rob, the wrestling commentator, and a couple of other roles uh, in that <laughs> in that episode as well. Tremendous amount of fun. Made it with um, three or four friends of mine who, from the stand-up comedy world that, that I've been gigging with and performing with for oh, 10, 12, 13 years. And uh, to get to do it on... On a national radio station is incredible and a hell of a lot of fun. So you can watch out for that. But we're not here for that. That's just extra stuff we're giving you that you can go and get for free. And uh, that's not what we're here for today. What we're here for today, what lies before us on the docket, is the 2005 Fantastic Four movie. And the first step on the episode is to find out what will might know before this movie came out let's journey into the mind of a muggle and let's see did you first question number one were you aware of this movie when it came out in 2005 i was aware i had no urge of seeing it i had absolutely no urge to see it when it came out sadly so that then what was your did you have any awareness of the fantastic four before this movie came out before this oh, of course. hit. Oh, of course. I knew about the Fantastic Four. I mean, the Fantastic Four are up there with Batman and Spider-Man as atypical superheroes. Well, typical sorry, typical superheroes. Really? They are, they, I, I, I have them up there because they... You've got to think about... Okay, when you think about superheroes, you've got to think about superhero teams. And the Fantastic Four, uh, whilst is not the most original name for a superhero team... Of, of course, they, they were you know back in the golden age of superheroes and whatnot it was no it, 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 silver age well the sil- silver okay age, silver the age but if we have I was to go the- through ages j- just just a quick silver age the golden age ends sort of after the after the second world war okay hmm. so silver age is the si- 50s 50s onwards okay carry on carry on Okay, that's 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 fair. Okay, Silver Age is that is that is that kind of typical? Hey, we've got a team of people who can do different things, and there's superheroes. Uh, and there's and there's there's four of them. What other great word starts with F? <laughs> but, but how? What I want to know is how. Like, how do you come across them? Because to me, they they are a huge part of Marvel comic books. But to the general average person, I would have assumed they had no knowledge. Of of this team, like where where is that knowledge coming from? Is it the cartoons? I think it was the cartoons originally. It was the Hanna Barbera cartoons. I remember watching those, and they were quite entertaining. But I think I don't. I can't pinpoint. They just sort of bled into the into my knowledge somehow. It it, it just like I, I I as far as I know, I've always been aware of Spider Man and the Fantastic Four. I've just, I, I can't pinpoint to when. That's really that's really interesting. I yeah. would have assumed that that they were, yeah, that they were not part of the public consciousness in quite the same way. Obviously, we can pinpoint for the Hulk, the yep. uh, Bill Bixby CBS TV series. For Spider Man, there is the the cartoon um, the cartoon series, and then of course there's the again the CBS TV series. You're referencing the Hanna Barbera. Mm. I mean, that, that's 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 like nineteen. That's late sixties. That's not even the seventies. That, that <laughs> was Cartoon Network, is... man. Cartoon Network used to churn How that an... stuff out all the time. Oh, right. Cartoon Network would come out with all these old cartoons you've never heard of, and they go, "Well, 
we've got all this time in the day to show cartoons on this channel specifically for cartoons that's not Nickelodeon. What do we do? Look at Hanna-Barbera's vault. See what's in there. Next to the Scooby-Doo. So we view this in two different ways. Mm. I, uh, man of the people, um, raised like any good human being is, without sky or cable. Mm. Um, Will, privileged debutante effect, uh, silver spoon in his mouth, had Sky Television, had had satellite slash cable television as I had a nine child. Ex. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and not until I was later on in my childhood either. It was considered a very, mm. very big privilege to have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's really interesting. So, so then you get that that bleed over of those old nineteen sixties, nineteen sixty seven, uh, Hanna Barbera. And here's the interesting thing about that cartoon series. Uh, just calm that down. Mm. <laughs> Seems to be someone yeah, you heard that, didn't you? in the background there. Um, so This the, is the uh, living on a main road, man. I can't wait to move. <laughs> the Hanna-Barbera uh, cartoon, it mm. just featured so many yeah. of, the, of, the, of the Fantastic Four's kind of... Uh, antagonists. It, it wasn't just. Mm. It was, wasn't a focus thing. We had the, we had the scrolls. Uh, we had the super scroll. We, we had the molecule man Diablo. Uh, we had Blastar and Galactus and and Ramatut. Ramatut is in it, which is a deep pull, a very deep pull on the, uh, on the Fantastic Four list. So that was um, yeah, that was really that's really interesting to say. And that was the one that had um, Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, in it. When you fast forward mm-hmm. to the 1970s cartoon series, the cartoon uh, producers... It's a, so we, we have uh, a, another series in the 70s, and they get very, very nervous <laughs> about the idea of a flaming man on the show because they get scared that it's going to encourage children to set themselves on fire. <laughs> so... Uh, Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, is not in the 1970s Fantastic Four cartoon. They replace him. They replace him with like a comedy robot character called Herbie, the humanoid experimental robot B-type integrated electronics, (laughs) and he's the fourth member of the Fantastic Four. Yeah, that's Uh, so bad. Which is (laughs) that is so bad. Genuinely concerned. Maybe people would set themselves on fire. So take us through then, Will. We, we, we've uh, been been taking a look in, in phase two of the MCU and, and beyond. We're of course the outside the MCU. We are in fact, Will, before the MCU. This is mm. P MCU pre Marvel Cinematic Universe. We like to take a look at the dollars and the cents to have a, get a sense, as it were, in a different sense. Of how the movies performed and how they were received, how they were, how they were set up by the production companies and how they were received by the public. So, if you've got the figures, I'd love to know the budget of this movie, two thousand and five. Well, well, two thousand five, Fantastic Four. The budget on this movie was a hundred mil, hundred million dollars, which does sound like someone made up that number. I want a hundred million dollars. That's 
but that's how, that's what the budget was a hundred million dollars. But the uh, so box that's office. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Let's have the box office. Oh, the box office was three hundred and thirty-three point five million dollars, which is pretty much just over what's needed to guarantee a sequel. And <laughs> and sequel did happen. And we we'll cover talk, that later. Um, as you've mm. as you've pointed out um, in the past, that kind of the magic number isn't is kind of making three times back your mm-hmm. your investment and your budget. Yep. So it, yep. it's certainly it certainly just about pulls that in. Um, that budget is more than the first X Men movie, uh, which mm-hmm. came in at seventy five uh, million dollars. Spider Man's mm-hmm. a bit of a different beast. But it, it certainly shows that they had um, f- some sort of confidence and faith in doing this. Yep. And I think, you know, the, the X-Men movies really, really were a big part of that because it's the same players, the same uh, companies that kind of make them think that's what they're going to be able to do and perhaps will be able to launch a similar franchise. And that that wasn't really the case uh, for this movie. And we'll, we'll get into that because, you know, as ever, we've had the feedback which we love to receive. Oh, yes. Interestingly, it's all been one-sided. <laughs> I think this is the first the first uh, episode we've done where the feedback has always tilted in that one direction. Um and it's been it's been it's been negative, um which I don't think we've encountered before, but we'll get mm. to that um very, very shortly. It, it, this is an important movie to cover. This is an important topic to cover for us. Um, on on our journey through Marvel, because this the Fantastic Four is the beginning of the Marvel universe. This is the comic book that changed comic books uh, and changed modern fiction forever, and arguably changed movies forever because of what we see now. Uh, this revolution was created by Stanley and and Jack Kirby in the very early sixties. This is a period of time where superhero comic books were old and dusty by the 60s. Well, (laughs) pre-war stories about tough, strong, square-jawed men who fought for truth and justice and the American way. They were, like, done. Like, they had a boom of popularity that, that was really big in the Second World War when people were really trying to reach out for some symbol of power and hope and justice in a very very dark time for the whole planet and then they ran their course and they became very unpopular not least because of as we as we discussed um in other episodes this sort of um public relations attacks senate hearings on how dark um, and violent comic books had become go mm. back to the archive check out the blade episode for some more deep info on those senate hearings there were book burnings across the u.s and the uk because of comic books um lots of talk about them corrupting the youth and so marvel which wasn't called marvel it was called timely comics at the time they stopped making superhero comics and they went back to science fiction to monsters and aliens attacking earth and the cowboys which were very popular and love stories which stanley was very good at writing romance comics were very popular and things like that 
Now, now uh, DC Comics, the, the competitors, which were called um, National Comics at the time, they, they kept making Superman and Batman, but they turned them into these um, very, uh, very goofy, childish, family-friendly stories. There's no fighting there's no violence in Superman or in Batman. Batman's not a grim, urban crime fighter, right? He's getting turned into a baby, into a toddler. He's <laughs> being transported to Mars. Superman's getting turned into a lion. Uh, or Jimmy Olsen's a giant turtle. It's just, it's a, it's a very goofy, goofy period, the, the 1950s. Um Stan Lee, during this time frame, is editor at what was Timely Comics, Marvel, and he's writing and editing these monster cowboy romance comics. And we're going to take a look at uh, some interviews and and, and the book that Stan Lee quote-unquote wrote (laughs) and and get some of his thoughts around the time. He said, um, I didn't like what Martin Goodman, that's the publisher of, of Timely Comics, I didn't like what Martin mm. Goodman wanted me to do. He felt comics were for young kids and stupid <laughs> adults. He used to say to me, Remember, Stan, don't use words of more than two syllables. Don't use too much dialogue. Get a lot of action and just don't worry about the characterization." <laughs> and I, I was doing that and the books were selling well and I had a steady job, but it wasn't satisfying me. Because I really think of myself as a reasonably good writer. I like to write characters. So I really wanted to quit and try something else. And Jack Kirby, in interviews, said at the same period of time, I had to do something different. The story, the monster stories have their limitations. You can only do so many of them. And then it just becomes a monster book, month after month, the same ideas. So there had to be a switch because the times weren't exactly conducive to good sales. So I felt the idea was to come up with new stuff all the time. In other words, there had to be a blitz of new ideas, a blitz of new characters. And and here is where, in our journey, we need to talk about Jack Kirby. And I have... I have been remiss in, mm. in not devoting more time to Kirby um, so far. And we're on episode 16. And I am remiss in doing that. And that's because perhaps I think more more as a writer than as an artist. And I think perhaps a bit more favourably towards Stan Lee. But we do need to talk about, about Jack Kirby. In, intentionally or not, because Jack Kirby has had fallings out and separations and legal battles with Marvel Comics and Disney... Ooh, wow. And because Stan, Stan Lee remained attached to the company for the rest of his life, the narrative that history remembers, the narrative that modern Marvel and DC pushes, is that Stan Lee created the Marvel Universe. Now, it doesn't deny Jack Kirby. He gets a small byline. It, it appears in every movie in the credits. Mm. But they don't actively acknowledge Jack like they do Stan Lee yeah. who had become their spokesman slash mascot and someone <laughs> that that they for want of a better term had had control over mm. um, what is interesting 
about Stan Lee and Jack Kirby is that well Jack Jack Kirby is the most influential storyteller in the history of American comic books. Hands down, there is no question. You can talk to anyone, you can ask anyone, they might have their favourites, but Jack Kirby, his nickname is The King, and it's an earned title, it's a title for a reason. His art style set the tone for literally every single comic book, superhero comic book that that, that came after him. Um, his, His work is really incredible, um, it's dynamic, it's powerful, and it just—he just birthed this this superhero kind of style out into the world. The um, the Marvel method of making comic books means that there is some kind of, I guess, discrepancy between how things come about and and how things happen. I'm just going to start to send you some of. Um, some of Jack Kirby's uh, artwork now, in case you haven't seen any of it, Will. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was creating things for um, DC Comics and for Marvel as well. Uh, and, and so he influenced kind of both sides of the, the tableau, as it were. Both sides of the table had this this kind of um, mm, this Jack Kirby yes. influence. Um and that's a that's a huge one from Etrigan the the demon. That's a great big splash page where he's doing very intricate designs. And um, but what's also amazing about about Jack Kirby is his composition of of a page, his ability to use the action to draw your eye in exactly the way it needs to be drawn to tell the story. Um, he was yeah. incredibly good at doing that, um, but he was also there's a there's a kinetic energy to his artwork there's a there's a there's a dynamic strength to his artwork I mean, there's him uh, drawing captain america who he co-created with joe simon and bucky um and that's a very very famous page there this man this monster a famous fantastic four story um which really highlights the pathos the sadness of the thing um, and and he just uh, he, the, the the way Marvel made comic books at the time leaves things open to interpretation because so the Marvel method, which was kind of created by Stanley with working with all these different artists, was that Stanley would write out the plot of the issue, yeah. send it to the artist in however much detail we don't know, but he would send it to the artist. The artist would then take the plot and break it down into uh, page by page and panel by panel within those pages. So you're giving a plot, maybe it's a two-page plot, maybe it's a one-page plot, breaking it down into all those different chunks, pacing it out, that in and of itself is a hell of a lot of storytelling. But these people were not given the credit of writer they were only given the credit of artist, which mm. sounds like they followed a plan, which in more yeah. modern comics might be page one, panel one, this is what it looks like, this is what is being said. Panel two, this is what it looks like, this is what's being said. And that wasn't the way, that wasn't the Marvel method. So the artist, in this case Jack Kirby, would take the plot 
and break it down into 22 pages, page by page, beat by beat, act by act, and then panel by panel on the page. And then those pencils would be sent back to, to Stanley, and he would write in all the dialogue, all the verbiage, all the words, all the captions, all of that. And then at the end, that's how you get the story. So it's very hard, if you look at that method, it's, it's impossible to say Jack Kirby created everything it's impossible to say stan lee created everything it's hard to unpick it all um and and they've kind of both gone head to head Uh, well no that's not true Mm. stan lee in all public comments says that jack he and jack kirby did it together and jack kirby was a huge part of the creative process and did lots of stuff with him and jack kirby makes life more difficult for us who want to be nice and kind about everyone because jack kirby says Stan Lee never wrote a single word of any comic book he was ever on. <laughs> and that's that's hard to reconcile. It's very hard to take that and, and do anything with it. But that's what Jack Kirby said for a long number of years. And it's also worth mentioning that during these long number of years, when he was saying this, Jack Kirby was in protracted legal battles and disputes with Marvel Comics over the ownership rights of all these characters. So you may say that Jack Kirby is the only voice outside of Marvel Comics speaking the truth, or you might say Jack Kirby has a vested interest in saying these things because he was involved in a legal battle to get himself more money and more rights over the characters. I've done a lot of digging and a lot of reading, and I don't know where to go. I don't know where to go. Okay, <laughs> I have a fondness for both men. Is it's hard? So let's just take a swig of something here. So at this time, the publisher of Timely Comics, what would become Marvel, Marty Goodman, he has this infamous golf game with Jack Leibowitz, who is the publisher of DC Comics at the time, National Comics. So you've got the two publishing heads of superhero comics, or of comic books, sorry, in America at the time, playing golf together. And Leibowitz is really bragging about this new superhero team, this new book they just put out, called The Justice League of America. And he's bragging about how the great the sales are, how popular it is. They've got all their top superheroes together in one book. And, oh, Martin, you wouldn't believe how great this thing is doing. Oh, and you've not got anything like that, have you? No, you, you, you've stopped. You've stopped doing superheroes. So Marty Goodman, a little riled up by this, and he's a... You can look at his, his, his history. He's a trend follower, not a trendsetter. So <laughs> when he sees how well the Justice League comic book is doing, he goes to Stan Lee and directs him to create a comic book featuring a team of, of heroes, and he says, you could go back, you don't have to do anything new, you could go back and use those wartime heroes, Captain America, Namor the Submariner, the Human Torch, just start with them, and go from there. And Stan uh, says that he's about to quit. He is on the verge of quitting comic books completely, and going to marketing, advertising, some other area of publishing, maybe do magazines... And his wife, Joan, says to him at the time, if you want to quit before you do, why don't you do one book the way you would like to do it? 
not the way they're telling you to do it. Mm. The worst thing that would happen is that you'll get fired. And so what? You want to quit anyway. So <laughs> that's that's exactly what he does. Stan figures that this is his chance to write a comic book for the first time ever the way that he wants to do it. With his level of of attention to character. So he, and I'll, I'll read now from from his interview from his book. I came up with something called the Fantastic Four, but instead of making them heroes who wore costumes, I figure I'm not going to give them costumes because I always felt if I had a superpower, why would I put on a costume? First of all, I'm too much of a show off. I'd want everyone to know it's me. I'm not going to wear a mask. If I could jump <laughs> over a building, why would I need to put on a colourful costume? I'll just jump over the building. I don't need a costume. I try to make them real characters living in the real world. The hero, Reed, he wasn't a perfect guy. He was a fella like me. Talked too much. Always boring other people because of the way he explained things. And he went on and on forever. And one of the other guys would have to say to him, will you just shut up? the obligatory teenager of the group instead of just robbing with Batman he runs around and fights all the bad guys with him I made this a teenager who didn't want to be a superhero he was like I was when I was a teenager he wanted to go out in his car and talk to girls the girl instead of the obligatory female who always had to be rescued and doesn't know the superhero's secret identity she was the hero's fiance. She was part of the group. She had a superpower, so she was a fighting member of the team. And the fourth guy was a monster. Something happened to him, and he became very ugly and very strong. And I used him for both pathos and humour, because he was always fighting with the others, always insulting them and yelling at them. He was bad-tempered, and the teenager was always picking on the monster. I got a lot of comedy out of that duo. And he became, far and away, the most popular member of the group. And that there, it does encapsulate what is important about the, and what is groundbreaking about the team. So when you go and look at what Jack Kirby talks about the Fantastic Four, all he ever talks about is the design, the <laughs> costume, and the powers, and the fact that they're a sci-fi book. When you go and see what Stan Lee talks about, he really talks about the heart of the characters. They are this is a groundbreaking series. It is hugely popular because it is hugely different. The characterization is hugely different. Reed is a boring blowhard. Johnny's an insufferable <laughs> kid. Ben is angry and grumpy and, and depressed. And Sue is not just a kidnap victim. If you read issue one, which you can get in, in collected volumes, this team are fighting and arguing and insulting each other all the way through the issue. Like the readers had never seen anything like this before, and it, and it and it blew them away. Stan and Jack created um, a hundred and two issues and a bunch of of annuals. These guys aren't fighting crime; they're adventurers, they're explorers. With the Fantastic Four in that in that hundred plus episode, uh, issue run, we discover we really discover the Marvel universe. So Thor is doing. Asgard and, and, and these kind of fantasy elements but almost every other character is kind of just around Manhattan and there's nothing else happening every 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 new Marvel hero is in Manhattan with the Fantastic Four 
we meet the Skrulls and the Kree, and we get Galactus mm. and the Silver Surfer, and they try to destroy the world, and Yuata, the Watcher, appears and says, there are Watchers everywhere. And then they go to the Negative Zone, and they battle Annihilus and Blastar and see Civil Wars, and they go to the hidden city of Wakanda, and they meet the Black Panther, and then they see Namor and the armies of Atlantis that want to rule the surface world, and they just entirely in that comic book they expand the Marvel Universe from within and they add and they build and they grow this rich tapestry this I mean it's it's world building on a, on like a Tolkien level but not as dull and it's just incredible <laughs> and, it, and it becomes hugely popular they get the cartoon series I mean uh, Fantastic Four is 61 they get the cartoon series in 67 they get another series in the 70s they get another cartoon series in the 90s um, and there are action figures and video games and that's the Fantastic Four this is the beginning of Everything. It's the beginning of the Marvel Universe. And not just because the first issue was good and things followed on from there, but because that 102 issue run is incredible and, and builds and builds and builds. And, and it is just. You, you, you can't believe <laughs> all these ideas come from the same two people jam packed into the same series. And it's, it's golden, man. It's golden. So that's uh, a little bit about how we get to where we are <laughs> for for this yep. movie to come around. And um, before we go any further, before we press play, Will, the uh, the people have been in touch. They've been uh, tweeting and they've been mailing away. Of course, you can get in touch with us by sending a, an email to marvelversusmarvel at gmail.com or you can drop us a tweet on the old Twitter machine by accessing at Marvel versus Will, what have you got for us in this episode? Well, I've got a couple of letters in, in my bag, in my bag. I've got one from David Ferguson that said, the Fantastic Four are some of my favourite characters ever. Back in the 80s, they had a cartoon show on Mondays with the human retort replaced by Herbie the Robot. Ugh. Hey! yeah, I I, I I I am not fond of replacing characters with a cute robot. <laughs> but they were So featured... you want children to set fire to themselves, Will? Is that what you want? You yeah, want little kids <laughs> Yeah. I, I thought Fair I thought enough. I gave yeah, off that like... vibe. <laughs> I mean uh, listen there's too many people in the world anyway so yeah fair enough yeah 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 you heard it here first folks uh anyway so yeah but they were featured in coloring books and annuals as well as marvel uk reprints the human torch being fairly popular in the uk maybe because he was missing from the cartoon anyway it captured my imagination and i've loved them ever since i like the movie a whole lot Making the smartest man alive a bit of a schlub was aggravating, and having Doctor Doom, the greatest villain in popular fiction, there's a character in a 70s space film who totally rips him off, Garth Raider, I think he's called, anyway, total rip-off despite the revisionist history that claims otherwise, reduced to a feeble businessman lacks grandness. Where the film really comes alive is the Cosmic Ray's origin scene. Ben trapped outside wrecks me every time. The cast are good, 
I would argue that this is the star turn from Chris Evans, already showing he was great in Celia, that made him not just a pretty face. Because of the weird hours I worked, I ended up seeing the film during a lot during a, a kids showing at the cinema. I fought to see this film in the cinema. It's not a good film because of the decent cast. I can kind of focus on the good bits and forget the bad. The Fantastic Four were the beginning of Marvel Comics and showcased the very best of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. The best Fantastic Four film is still The Incredibles, but I hope the first family of Marvel will get their due one day cinematically. Who who wrote that one man? I, I missed the start of that. David Ferguson. David Ferguson, brother. Might need to get him on the show. I, 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 we had a lot of people write in about this episode, and I disagreed with most of them. And I, I, <laughs> I, think, I, I think me and you disagree about this movie. I, I, yeah. I was really on board with David. With David's uh, right, I think everything he wrote here is, is kind of spot on. Um, I, 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 I have a feeling. I think he's missing the point of Reed Richards, though. Reed Richards is 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 a schlub. That's his that's his deal. He's the smartest guy alive, but he's also a complete mess. But um, <laughs> yeah, well, thanks thanks for that for that message. Um, I uh, I really jive with what you're laying down, and that is that our one and only positive uh, message about the movie. Will uh, no, <laughs> what else have you got I, for us? I've I've got another one from John Carruthers who wrote in to say nowhere near as bad as people claimed. But still not as amazing oh. as it should have been. And the latest version sure. make this looks like a cinematic masterpiece. There must be a way to do them justice, and no one has quite found the magic yet. Yeah, I gotta go with that. Yeah, um, the the the, the um, remark that that, that uh, David Ferguson made about the Incredibles was interesting. Mm. Um, there's a bit of trivia about this movie. Have you heard this? The Incredibles trivia about this film? No, I haven't. When the Incredibles was finished and was come out, mm. the production team saw it, and so much of what they had Elastigirl do with her stretching powers in the movie was so 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 similar to what Mister Fantastic was doing in the climax of the film that they had to completely rewrite and oh. reshoot the end of the movie, and it cost them, I think, in excess of a million dollars to Ooh. to redo it. They had to go back into production and and redo the whole ending, because Pixar, without crediting anyone, without paying homage to anyone, without acknowledging anything whatsoever, takes a whole lot from Jack and Stan. And anyway, I was genuinely annoyed when I saw that film. Uh, I, I really liked the film. The Credibles is a really fun, good film, but I spent the whole movie thinking to myself. It's going to be really great when I see in the credits that 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 credit that says with special thanks to or with 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 love to Jack Lee Jack Lee Stanley Jack Kirby or Marvel Comics or whatever it's going to be I just I really felt that we we're going to have that and I was when I saw the credits and there was no acknowledgement of where they had lifted everything I was furious but there we go yeah, a that's a bit. It's a bit. No, no, no. I, th- I think you're totally, to- totally right with that one. Yeah, they, they should have at least kind of given give them a nod, t- tip of the hat. But no. no, that's all you need. But that that leaves you open to being sued, doesn't it? So you you, yeah. you can't do it. Right. Any more from the mailbag? Will no, the mailbag's done. 
Those are the only two positive remarks. Well, <laughs> <laughs> That's not right. So what we'll say in there, folks, is not that the mailbag only had two in. It's that we don't want to present a negative episode, a negative show. So we, you know, but we had an awful lot of people saying that this movie was, in to use kind words, not their cup of tea. Um, <laughs> and a, a vast, a, a vast amount of, I don't know. I think there's a lot of revisionist history with this. Uh, but let's, before we get going, remind ourselves of where you can get even more Marvel versus Marvel action. And that's by heading over to our main website on Patreon. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Marvel versus Marvel. And that's where you can find a whole bunch of bonus episodes and content uh, you can get early access to these episodes. Instead of a Monday, you can get access to these on Friday and have the whole weekend with them. You can check out blogs we've got on older episodes. You can check out mini episodes. And you can uh, sign up and get yourself a part of the action VIP pass. And you can take advantage of our full-length bonus episodes that we put out every month. We've done uh, two so far. One covering the cosmic heroes that spawned off, well, that, that laid the groundwork for the Guardians of the Galaxy. And mm-hmm. the new episode this in the August month has been the Superior Spider Man saga. Will, was that not the most fun we've had in ages doing that? That was, a, that was a very fun episode. I had a lot of fun with that one. It was insane, though. It was a lot to take in. I mean, I thought the Clone Saga was a bit much, uh, but Superior Spider Man, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and what's great about the full length bonus ones on Patreon is that uh as we like to say uh daddy apple and mommy spotify aren't listening and we can have a bit more fun get a bit more get a bit more loose with it all and and uh, <laughs> generally have a great old time which we did with that and we've got some great feedback coming in from our wonderful patrons who we adore because they do what's right. They know that this podcast costs money to keep running. And so they do the right thing. They take their PayPal account. They go to patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. They become a patron. They do it for £3 or £5 or £10. They put the money in. They get the bonuses and the rewards. And they make the rest of this possible. Because without the financial contributions, we couldn't keep making these podcasts that you're listening to right now. We just could not afford to do it with all the the costs and the time and everything. So we want to take a minute to acknowledge what they've got to say. Because they're the most important part of this process. Cody writes in to say... The new Superior Spider-Man bonus episode was awesome. Going through the whole story from beginning to end was great. It made me want to go sit down and read that storyline, even though I just finished the episode and I knew what was going to (laughs) happen. And that is definitely something I'll be doing. It's on my list. I'm going to be rereading it very, very soon. I love these full-length bonus episodes. You Sorry, can't, you... Will. You're not allowed to read any Marvel. Do you want the Do you want the whole show to fall apart? Is that what I you're don't, after? I don't. But it sounds so. It just sounds so good. <laughs> you gotta wait, man. Maybe in five years' time, yeah. you can you can yeah, get hold of a Marvel comic. Cody says, "I love these full-length bonus episodes. I think Secret Invasion 
would be an awesome topic to cover at some point mm. for a future episode. Please keep making them. I've dropped it in a couple of times, haven't I? Secret Invasion. Yep. I've, I've oh, referenced yeah, yeah. It, it. It's been mentioned quite a lot. We're, we're, we're definitely going to get to it, but it, uh, Cody, uh, if you're mentioning it, Cody, you know. So if you know, then you know the episode. Like It needs to connect to a certain episode way down the line. So... Who who knows about that? Um, we've got another shout out here, and another great message from Peter J. Um, he gets in touch. He's got a lot to say, and so he should because he's an OG. He sent. He, he was one of the first. In fact, he was the first original person to subscribe to be a patriot, to be a patron, to pledge his money and his love and his fiefdom. Um, and and he's been sending us gifts that he's made as well, badges and all sorts of things. And and he's um, you know he's one of the the big guys that supports yeah. the show. And he writes in with with a lot to say, and there's a lot of worth and emotion in this. Uh, he says just a quick disclaimer: this may turn to a long rambly email. Uh, <laughs> and it may make no sense, but uh, we're just going to go ahead with it. The tone of this podcast is just incredible. It puts a smile on my face while I'm listening. In short, it is a podcast about something I love. And hearing people who clearly love that thing too is just liberating. Having people talk about, discuss, laugh at, review and learn about and have fun with that thing is just wonderful. The last two episodes were amazing. The Superior Spider-Man saga has made me start buying the trade paperbacks and start developing into that particular Spider-Man story arc. The Spider-Man 2 episode definitely did justice to my favourite superhero movie of all time. Although, Into the Spider-Verse may take that spot soon. And next up we have 2005 Fantastic Four film. Now I know it's not a great movie, but I really do enjoy it. I'm a Doctor Doom fan. So I find myself watching this film and the sequel in one go, as this shows Doom's evolution a lot better. Or maybe it's just me, but that's the way I do it. The movie does not deserve the bad reviews it gets. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but it is fun. Grufford is a great Mr. Fantastic. The Invisible Woman doesn't seem to get much out of the script, which is a shame. Although she has even less to do in the 2015 version. Torch and Thing have a great relationship and they act like a family. And that's the core thing for me. It's the Fantastic Four. Family is important. I do enjoy these movies. Maybe the Thing isn't as big as I would want him to be. Maybe Doom's evolution takes too much time. And maybe the Invisible Woman doesn't get as much of the film to do deserves. It's not perfect, but it's fun. I look forward to this episode. Um, I get three months... I get three episodes a month with my subscription and it's totally worth it. You talked about things mattering. The letters from the Spider-Man No More story spark this and yes, you're right. Not only do these things matter, but also letters and letter pages matter. For me, letters pages, and I think, Will, that this kind of, this is a letters page. It's an audio letters page that we're doing now, so we're getting a bit meta here. Oh yeah. For me, letters pages started the whole printed matter thing that I have truly bonded with. I love comics, be they mainstream or bootleg comics, outlaw comics, small print zine comics. I also love fanzines, small press publications, 
And all of this started with letters pages. Back in the 50s, the pulp magazines that produced those sci-fi stories that had just a little bit of sex and men and strange aliens, they were the epitome of what we now think of as pulp. And also they had these letter pages. These letter pages had all manner of fans arguing about the science and the (laughs) plots. There were a lot of letters with questions for the other letter writers and one editor got fed up of having to decide which letters and which questions to publish. And so they started publishing the full name and address of each letter writer in the magazine. And then these people started to write to each other, asking questions directly and and not going via the magazine. These letter chains would be hand-copied into small collections (laughs) and then sent on to other interested parties. And slowly but surely, they turn into the very first fanzines in publication. Just imagine that maybe your partner has passed away and all of a sudden you're living with some truly great people but in a less than ideal circumstance and some days you really do not know what to do or how to stop the dumbass stuff that's happening in your brain. And there are all these comics and these zines and these fantastic stories that take you away for a little while and these letter pages show you people who think the same as you and some of these letter pages have a life of their own and discuss real things and he then recommends to read the uh, the letter pages in a comic book called Sex Criminals Ooh. which sounds weird sounds weird but it's really good anyway just imagine that in that kind of situation in that kind of life you get back from reading and taking in the art and escaping this world just for a moment that although nothing has changed for you you're filled with fantastical stories of heroes and villains and maybe just a bit more hope things matter these things matter the things you see matter comics and the world they make us inhabit matter read a good run of a comic book and you'll be a better person for it and then he goes on to say that he's uh, done a small experiment by picking a podcast at random from our selection, Thor The Dark World. I played it over the film with the sound of the film off. <laughs> I'm not saying people should do this, but it was really quite good experience. Spookily, three sections match up perfectly. I started the film when Will said, press play. Oh. It was nice having the visual reminders to link the episode. I may see which episode timings match up to the film times and try this again. Thank you so much for what you do. Keep it up, guys. Peter J, man, we love you. Thank you for reaching out and sharing a personal story, an emotional story. We appreciate that. Mm. And we're really glad that this gives you something to do and gives you an escape and uh, lets you connect with things differently. Absolutely. So we've heard from our wonderful fans, uh, audience members, patrons. We've taken care of a little business. We've told you how you can get in touch. We've told you how you can get access to more bonus episodes by going to patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel. And now I think it's appropriate, nay necessary, Will, for you to take that fat plastic VHS copy (laughs) that they definitely still made in 2005, (laughs) put it into the slot... Oh. Will, let's press play. Let's press play. Let's press. Pr- let's press play. Doctor Reed Richards, a genius but timid and bankrupt physicist, 
is convinced that evolution was triggered millions of years ago on Earth by clouds of cosmic energy in space and has calculated that one of these clouds is soon going to pass near Earth. Desperate for funding, Reed and his friend, the gruff but loyal astronaut Ben Grimm, tried to secure finances from Reed's old college classmate, Dr. Victor Von Doom. So, the movie starts with Reed and Ben doing this on their own. Are they close friends like this in the comic books? Yeah, they they, they went to Empire State University together and, and they were roommates thrown together, you know, as roommates are by by chance very different backgrounds Ben Grimm is later on shown to be um, from quite an impoverished part of, of New York very very working class family Reed Richards his family's got some money but they mm. bond they have completely different interests but they get on you know <clears throat> Reed is Reed and he's very very focused on studies and maths and physics and science and all of that and Early on, uh, Ben Grimm is an engineer, although that kind of that kind of gets left out later on. Uh, but they, <laughs> they bond and they help each other out. And then after they both graduate, Ben goes off and joins the military. And he fights in a war. <laughs> now, originally, originally this comic book is, is being comes out in 1961. So they're talking about it's a flashback to them being at college together. So the war that he goes off and fights in is the World War Two, but of course, yes. uh, as Marvel carries on, the sliding time scale slides into effect, <laughs> and it goes from being the Vietnam War, World War Two, to the Vietnam War, to the whatever war, whatever was closest to the story, and then he he doesn't see Reed for for several years, and then he joins the space mission, and throughout the Fantastic Four, they are portrayed as being yeah best friends they're complete opposites but they are they are best friends best man at each other's weddings things like that yeah that's adorable okay so it so they're very close friends we got that uh but victor is now is the is now the brilliant but conceived ceo of von doom industries and he agrees to fund the mission to his own private space station in exchange for control of the experiment and the lion's shares of any profits Victor brings aboard his beautiful chief genetics researcher, sorry, chief genetics researcher and Reed's ex-girlfriend, Susan Storm, and her hot-headed brother, Johnny Storm, a private astronaut who was Ben's subordinate at NASA, but would now be his superior on the mission. Okay, let's take a time oh. out and talk about... Oh. I know, like, like the tension's there already. And uh, if if Johnny Storm in this film was my superior with anything, in fact, if he was my subordinate, I'd still be angry. <laughs> this is a guy. This is a guy I would not work well with. I'd be like, mate, put your top back on and stop looking sexy. We got to do work. I, so, I don't. I don't want to stand anywhere near yeah. this 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 living human being. I, um, I, I I don't like him. I don't like him. I I I like him when he's on fire. Which just sounds psychotic. <laughs> you're, not, you're not meant to. He's meant to be a character that only like petulant children and teenagers can like. And I yeah. think he nails it. I, yeah, if you're, 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 if you're right. not wholly selfish, you can't... You just go, 
this guy is a douche. <laughs> Which is exactly what it is. Yeah. He is the kind of person who would use the word douche as well. Uh, va- va- so, hey, hey, I'm not saying, I didn't mean that. Don't don't give me the fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's talk about, let's see, let's see, Von Doom, it's an obvious villain name. You can tell he's going to be the bad guy. That is such... I know, I don't want to, I don't want to mess with Stan Lee and his legacy, but Von Doom. Von Doom. There was a lot of people on a lot of websites and a lot of fan mail saying they should have changed his name. It's ridiculous. Um, (laughs) And I'd like to sing you a little, a little song of my people. And it goes a little something uh, like this. <laughs> Stop trying to make comic books realistic. Um, <laughs> it's just a dumb... It's just You just sound like an idiot. His name is Von Doom, right? It's a weird name. It's a European name. Just get... Yeah. It's a, listen. Victor Von Doom is a cool name. Doctor it Doom is. is a cool name. Don't it, mess it, what you want to be called. You want him to be called what? Victor McFred, Victor Victorson, oh god, you Victor Michaels. I I think the logic behind the name is quite interesting. He's like, okay, we got a name. It's got to be something like Doom. But how do we make it more evil? How about we make it sound German? (laughs) (laughs) That's what we've done. Nothing makes something more evil sounding than making it sound vaguely German. Absolutely. Anything kind of European uh, in the 60s. I love that. Never Shaken. Never Shaken has that. Just make something sound more German, more (laughs) British, and immediately we're the bad guys. Um, Okay, Johnny Storm's entrance also. As much as I slag the character off, I did like his entrance. He came in on a motorbike. Well, I think he was snogging a woman on a motorbike while Velvet Velvet Revolver playing. A well-known beat combo of the time. Who I've seen live. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, man! It's a really cool entrance. They really, yeah. you know, they 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 are they throw everything at the wall to go. He he's so, he is cool, but he's so cool he's insufferable, and I that's yes, I think that's uh, that conveys very much. They they, they yeah. basically looked at the uh, bit in Top Gun where Tom Cruise is riding the motorbike near the runway. And yeah. Like, okay, we want to yeah. do that, but we want to <laughs> we want to convey it that the character is even more insufferable than Tom Cruise. How do we do that? <laughs> Worse than Maverick. Worse than Maverick, indeed. Also, um, I liked the designs of the spacesuits. They were clearly. Um, they they claim they had scientific properties and they're all good and stuff, but it's like these were flattering. Come on, they were now, very listen, sexy. Now, uh, 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 it's hard to know how to discuss this without right. <laughs> the Jessica Albert when she walks in in that suit, you just I mean, pass me wants to zip it all the way up because it just <laughs> it's 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 nearly. People can dress however they want, and if it makes them feel wonderful and confident and, and smart and brilliant, fantastic, and it makes them feel like it's a little two fingers up to their ex, brilliant, but it just it just did not seem like appropriate space wear, uh, is what I'm saying. Not that I would write in and complain, but I you know I, I think it's yeah. very distracting for the mission. Very distracting for the mission. You need a lot of attention they, during a space mission. So the the, the costumes um, 
Stan talked early on when we talked about he talked about it. He he said mm. he didn't want them to have any costumes. The only negative feedback he got from the first issue was they have to wear if you don't have them wear costumes, I'm never reading this again. Ooh. He said he used to get that, and, and it was the first I think two or three issues they didn't have costumes, and they got tons of negative feedback saying, I love this, this is brilliant, but they have to wear costumes. So they created these costumes, which don't look too dissimilar. They're kind of just blue jumpsuits. That's all they are. There's not quite a deep V on, on any of them, because it's 1961, but yeah, blue jumpsuits with a four, and that's it. Um, but they then explained that Reed had invented these costumes to be uh, composed of unstable molecules. <laughs> so that Reed's costume stretches with him. Johnny's costume doesn't burn, doesn't turn to ash when he goes on fire. And Sue's costume turns invisible alongside her. Um, and so, yeah, they, they have to kind of get some of that here, out up front right now at the start with these unstable space suits. I don't want to wear anything called, it's called unstable at all, especially in a space no, no, it just makes it sound like it's going to fall off at any moment. And you don't want to be naked in space. That's the last place no, you want to be naked, naked in is space. space. Naked in it's space. The last, it's the last place. You're talking, you're talking Event Horizon level uh, craziness there, naked in space. Oh, yeah. Sam Neill naked in space. It's a terrifying sight. It's a terrifying sight. With that, with, what, without his eyes? <laughs> oh, there's oh, a, that there's film a... is so scary. That I might have to rewatch that film, but it uh, it scared the hell out of me first yeah. time trying to watch it. it was so I'm scary. now thinking I'm going to have to do exactly the same thing. Okay, great. That's yeah, what I'm boy. doing tonight. Thanks a lot, brain. Well, that'll be on our sister podcast. Uh, well, who's the director of that film? <laughs> Paul W. Paul W. S. Anderson versus Paul W. S. Anderson. <laughs> Paul he hasn't w. got a good ring to it. <laughs> yeah, Paul w., whatever his name is. Paul, I can't remember. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, also Ben Grimm in this film, and I know it's such an obvious thing to say. He looks like Ross Kemp. All I can think of is Ross Kemp in space. <laughs> Ah, well, yeah, yeah. Now, for those of you on the other side of the Atlantic, Ross Kemp is an actor from a British soap opera called EastEnders, where he played Grant Mitchell. And then he became a documentary filmmaker who went off to, to interview bad lads and gangs and then, like, terrorist organizations and... yeah take drugs live on camera and do all sorts of weird stuff. And he does look quite a bit like Michael Schickelis. <laughs> Although Michael Schickelis is very short. He's very, very short. And Ross Kemp's quite tall. But yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the difference there. So this all comes together in the film. They all come together in a quite seemingly... Uh, appropriate event like oh it just happens that we're all in the same space mission funded by a guy I used to study with is this how they came <laughs> together in a comic book so is it more interesting because yeah no it's no. Cold War space race Cold War <laughs> space race <laughs> so it's 1961 and Reed Richards is for some reason obsessed with beating the commies into space, so no one's gone into space by the time this comic book is being written and put out. Like no, Yuri Gagarin hasn't gone there yet, so it's a quite a, a rife idea. Why don't we write mm. a comic book about the first people to go into space? So Reed Richards in, invents and builds the first spacecraft capable of taking humans into space. 
And NASA say, like, it's unsafe and they won't allow him to do it. So Reed just decides to steal the rocket ship and ignore NASA and fly <laughs> into space. He said, he no, sir, to NASA. That sounded <laughs> he, better he, in my he head. Has, <laughs> he has no crew, right, to stack the rocket. Yeah, yeah. So his solution to this is to take his girlfriend and her teenaged brother, neither of whom have any military, engineering, or scientific knowledge or experience at all. No, He's just yeah. like, come on then! Uh, but who's going to fly the rocket ship? None of them are pilots. So Reed then remembers that way back in university, his roommate, who was a pilot, one day sarcastically said to Reed, I tell you what, mate, if you ever build that rocket ship you're always banging on about, I'll fly the bloody thing. So Reed tracks him down and says, Right, you know what you said. Well, jokes are verbal contracts, so get on board. You've got to, you've got to fly my rocket ship now. And so that is, it's all absolutely insane. Um, and so that, that's the sixties. Over the years, they tried to update it and try to make it make sense. So it can't be going to space for the first time anymore because there are astronauts now. So. It, it becomes uh, Reed wants to be the first, the first man to go to Mars, and then they have to kind of develop it beyond that, and it becomes the first people to go to the edge of the universe with a faster than light ship, and they 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 never really in the regular Marvel universe they never really come up with a good reason for why Sue and Johnny are on the mission, yeah, because they never make them sign in the ultimate. We talked about the ultimate universe before. Mm. Like a, a a a retelling of the Marvel stories that took place in the year two or started in the year two thousand. In the in the Ultimate Marvel Universe, they make Sue a scientist, which easily explains her presence. That makes sense. But in the regular <laughs> Marvel Universe, they have never done that, and it makes no sense that she'd be there. But there you go. There we go. Okay, that I, 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 it annoys me that for decades that hole was left there. Going, well, <laughs> she's she's a woman. She follows the man around. That's her role in life. Well, she she actually kind of uh, press ganged him into letting her go. She was like, "It's not happening unless I'm there." <laughs> oh, oh God! Oh, so. and he went happy wife, happy life. He said to himself as he let Rumble exactly the spaceship. what he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man! So, blast off! The quintet travels to Victor's space station to observe the cosmic energy clouds. Victor gets down on one knee and starts to propose to Sue. But Reed has miscalculated and the cosmic clouds materialise well ahead of schedule. And the effect could be deadly. Reed, Susan and Johnny leave the shielded station to try and rescue Ben who has gone on a spacewalk. Victor refuses to risk his life for any of them and closes the protective shields behind the four of them. Ben receives full exposure to the cosmic cloud out in space while the others receive a more limited dose as it tears through the station. So, at this point of the film, I realised it is a B-movie. This is a classic B-movie. It just feels like a B... You know what I mean? 
From the set no. design to the way no. that... Oh, no, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I'm not saying B-movie as in bad movie. It just feel, it just made made me think of like the old 1950s, 1960s, like... They 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 have this sparkly space station like you know the, okay the space station design although it's pretty cool it is pretty cool but it has that artificial gravity that doesn't work and this is me getting technical again this is me getting technical oh, the only time the only time artificial go. the only time I've seen artificial gravity work properly was two thousand one a space odyssey when they had the rotating ship the the, the ship rotated. So you were walking, and that's how it works, centrifugal force. But here it's just like, ah, we're walking like it's nobody's business on the floor. Hey! Yeah, it's science fiction. They press a button, and gravity happens. Science fiction? <laughs> B-movie! Those things tie together really well. <laughs> they don't! They don't! Like, B-movie <laughs> applies to schedules, production times, uh, uh, budgets... Production values, and this film has very. This is a hundred million dollar movie. You don't get hundred million dollar B movies. It's no different. It's no different in its scope. It's no different in its presentation, and it's no different in its concept than any other science fiction movie of its time. Is it a perfect film? No. But being in a space station and getting attacked by something. It's just a science fiction film, Will. I okay, okay. I'll go with science. I'll go with classic sci-fi. Classic sci-fi. Also, the bit when they got hit with cosmic energy was a bit odd, wasn't it? A bit, a bit like, uh, oh no! No, it's one of the best parts of the film. <laughs> this is ludicrous. <laughs> I, I wrote down in my notes that still looks really good to this day. I'm very impressed. By the special effects of this scene, it holds up. It stands up. It looks good. What's what's cringy about it? Well, when they that go, they, they do react the, like they, they do the reaction shots, and I'm like, because they're about to get killed by cosmic gas. Will? <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Uh, okay, okay, we'll agree to disagree. So <laughs> let's stop here. When did you first watch this film? <laughs> when did I watch this the other week? The first Not time two- you watched it. This is the first time I watched it, yeah. Right, to- so just uh, for people at home, that's why. <laughs> and I understand. I If you watch this 15 years after the fact, <laughs> yes, it just doesn't... It, it, it yeah. just... You, you're applying modern sensibilities to it. I, I went this into is, this yeah. going... I remember really not liking this and thinking this was lame. And I went in and watched it and went... This is not that lame. This is actually okay. This is a pretty fun family film. And the, yeah, the, yes. and the effects aren't awful. The effects are okay. They're 15 years out of date, but, you know. the we'll, There's something else to say about this, but we'll do it in a bit. Okay, so we'll just, we'll just crack on. No worries. There's another crack point on. to make about this, but yeah. So, speaking of CGI, is this how they get their powers in the comics? A cosmic cloud... <laughs> um, no, no. Well, so when the story was written, no one knew what was in space because no human had ever gone there. So mm. they just Stan and Jack just said, "If you leave Earth, mm-hmm. there's all these um, 
cosmic rays. They're just, they're literally, if you go outside of our atmosphere, that's where cosmic rays live. And you'll get bombarded with them as you go through. If you, once you leave the atmosphere, it's cosmic ray time and you just get bombarded with them. And they do weird things with you. So Reed completely screws up <laughs> the the rocket that he's built. He screws up the shielding on the rocket. Like he doesn't build it properly on the cockpit, which is the one place to do it the best. And so they all get kind of <laughs> bombarded. And that's how they get their, their powers. And it's a complete kind of accident. Um, but it's not a timed event. They're not they're not going to a, they don't go to a space station. They are not um, going to, to you know to encounter uh, a cosmic thing. It's just they're going to go into space for the first time. Do what Yuri Gagari then went on to do. A year mm. after the Fantastic Four uh, first appeared, um, Stan and Jack created a Soviet version. Uh, this this Russian <laughs> scientist, I Ivan Kragov, saw what happened to the Fantastic Four and said, "I want powers too." So he builds a rocket ship and intentionally does the shielding badly and <laughs> flies up there with his crew and intentionally gets the, him and the whole crew bombarded with cosmic rays so they all gain superpowers. Ivan Kragoff becomes able to turn invisible and intangible, pass through solid objects. So he becomes the Red Ghost because he's a Soviet. <laughs> and his crew, you might be expecting a dark version of the Fantastic Four. No, mm. his crew were all monkeys. They were all <laughs> monkeys. <laughs> so, Soviet space monkeys. <laughs> so one monkey becomes super strong. The other monkey becomes uh, able to shapeshift. And the last monkey is able to have like magnet powers, but like not just a metal to anything. <laughs> So, yeah, <laughs> that's the Red Ghost and his crew. Over the years, they kind of updated it. Um, they've had to, really, to say, uh, um, well, obviously, there aren't cosmic rays everywhere because now astronauts are real. Uh, so and they went up there <laughs> and none of them turned none of them turned into the human torch. So let's come up with something else. So they, they it's a freak event. It's like this, basically. Yeah. It's a yeah. freak event, like... A solar well, flare. Thing is, cosmic cloud is just about right. Yeah, cos cosmic cloud works for me fine because it's it's it's, it's vague enough to not be stupid, but also be like, oh, mm, yeah, we'll call it cosmic cloud. The thing is, in space, you will get bombarded with radiation anyway. So the idea of cosmic rays yeah. isn't that ridiculous. It's just what they no, do to you. It is again. Yeah. It's one of like Stan or Jack read a thing <laughs> in a paper and went. <laughs> oh? Oh, cosmic rays. Yeah. Everything's radiation. All my creations are radiation. <laughs> it's again worth pointing out here that this is around the time that Jack Kirby would say, Stanley never read, never read anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only person who ever read about science. So, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, that's Jack for you. That's He's Jack. He's an amazing artist. He, but he once compared Stanley to the SS. I'm not entirely sure he's, he's he's a little unhinged at times. That's yeah, that's 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 unhinged. That's that's very unhinged. Uh, yeah. So 
I think now's a good time to get back to the story after that. Come after <laughs> breaking rule. Is it rule thirty? Not rule thirty-four. What, what was? What was the, is it? Godwin's law. We didn't mention Hitler. No, exactly. Just but he skirted it. He skirted. He, he skirted. Skirted that. around Hitler. Skirted around yeah. Hitler, which hey, is the title man, of my new sitcom. Kirby's a working class Jewish man who fought in the Second World War. If he wants to bring up the SS, I ain't going to stop him. That's fair. That's fair. So, back on Earth, they return home and go into quarantine, where they soon begin to develop strange powers. Reed is able to stretch like rubber. Susan can become invisible and create force fields, especially when angered. Johnny can engulf himself in fire at temperatures in excess of 4,000 Kelvin and is warned not to get so hot he goes supernova and is able to fly. And Ben is transformed into a grotesque, rock-like creature with superhuman strength and durability. Reed immediately vows to find a way to turn Ben back into a human. Meanwhile, Victor who only has a scar on his face from the accident, faces a backlash from his stockholders due to the publicity from the failed mission. I just want to say that I'm really glad Chris Evans was given another chance to play Captain America in another Marvel film. I know they could... I I reckon with this, I I could have imagined them getting Sean William Scott from the American Pie movies to play him. (laughs) He's that kind of vibe. (laughs) He has his stiffler as a spirit animal, <laughs> but it's 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 not it's not it's not character it's not off kilter characterization. It is exactly what it needs to be. It really yeah. is. I yeah. I was genuinely I was really impressed with with Evans and and Shikilis in this movie, mm. and 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 Grufford as well. Uh, you know. Um, Albert doesn't get much to do, so it's hard to kind of be impressed. And, but, Albert just looks angry but, at them when they do something. She, she looks yeah, disapproving. It's such, it's She's such very a, disapproving. It's such a, it's such a lame thing to have the female, the only female character, be the come on guys, you need to behave. You know the kind of <laughs> yeah. stop having fun, and and uh, it's, it's a lame, lame trope of movies that just don't know how to write women properly, but. Um, I, 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 I was really impressed with Chris Evans because again, you, mm. we've been we've been watching him for a bunch of movies now on this journey. Oh yeah, to see him in a different role is interesting, and he, the the writing of Johnny Storm is spot on. The writing of Ben Grimm is spot on, and they both those actors do a really really good job on it. Um, but yes, it is it is like a. A stifler character. It's it's, yeah. it's you are. If you're an adult, you should be. Just, oh, I'm just this guy. Because <laughs> you need to feel like Ben Grimm does. Like, oh, yeah, God, yeah. you. Oh, just leave. I just think give I me five minutes of peace. I sighed. I sighed. Sided with uh, Grimm the whole time in this film. I was like, he, he, he's my man. He's my man. This guy. This guy's my man. As a kid. As a kid. I adored Johnny Storm. I yep. desperately wanted to be. I wanted to be Johnny Storm. I kind of wanted to be Robin, and I kind of wanted to be Bucky. But Johnny Storm, because he was a bit older and he could mm. fly, man, and it was, and it was just like he's cool and he plays all these pranks and tricks. But then, yeah, as an adult, you read and you go, "I would have killed him. I would have <laughs> if I was made of rocks. 
Oh god, I would have killed him. He is he yeah. is just so he's cocksure but the right amount. So uh the snowboarding scene as well. Uh I have to say it, it it did make me feel old. The soundtrack is definitely of its time and I went, "Oh man, what Tony Hawk's game is this from?" I thought when I was listening to it. It just made me feel old. That that's what I think I want to say about this movie is that Yeah. As much as I think it's better than I remember, and much better than a lot of the reviews, mm. this is 2005. This film is three years removed from Iron Man. Yes, yes. And yet, this film, this film feels like a 1997-1998 film. It feels like a 90s yeah. movie. Yes. All the way through. Yeah. It feels so much like... And not just a script... The music, the fact that he's a snowboarder to show snowboarding in motocross in 2005, it feels like they have taken a script from one of the previous other times <laughs> to do the film, which there were numerous times, numerous attempts to do this film over the years. It feels like they just took the script and didn't change anything and made it in 2005. I cannot believe that this is three years removed from. Iron Man still feels contemporary yes. to this day. Yes, and this is this movie feels out of date in two thousand and five. And again, I have a, I have a lot of affection for it, and I think it's yeah. much better than people make it out to be. But I am absolutely convinced that if we look into the, if we can dig through the, the secure files, we'll find that the script, albeit with a tweak here and there, is essentially the same as something that was written in in the mid-90s. It feels 10 years out of date. It really, it really does. Um, I, yeah, it's... I, I think that, that's why they gave the character Johnny Storm, they, they didn't even attempt to have any depth, and they went, no, it's fine, he's the stiffler. He's the stiffler. Well, he doesn't need. He, he doesn't. He doesn't need to have depth. Not not even yeah. in the first movie, anyway. He doesn't okay. need to. He just just let him just let him agitate people for a bit. Also, uh, they they reveal him to be the most powerful uh, weapon of mass destruction of all time, which I thought was weird. What do they, they do? They, 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 he is basically the most powerful WMD of all time. He can supernova. He could supernova and destroy the world. He could destroy. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is this is this is a this is a okay. Yeah. So this is a this is a problem that they inherit from the comic books because yeah. So what do we know about Stan Lee and scientific <laughs> terms? He doesn't know what he's talking about. So, and 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 I think comic writers in general. I don't know if Stan wrote this line. I associate it with John Byrne in the 80s, really. But mm. So the writers do not mean supernova when they say supernova. What they mean is very, very hot. So that yeah. became a thing to refer to the top level of the Human Torch's power of being very, very hot and burning like whatever he wants. They called it supernova, right? Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that it has an actual real scientific kind of definition, which they yep. do not mean. They do not mean he could destroy the world, and it and it kind of just bled, just bled over from there. Because I don't. What do they say? Like four thousand Kelvin? 
4,000 Kelvin, yeah, that's quite hot. That's not, that's not, yeah, it is, but it's not like, like a supernova is in the millions, isn't it? So yeah. they don't mean, it's just, it's just like um like a buzzword that means very, very hot. And yeah, I, I, I like to think that in this, what the comic books have got no excuse for it because they keep saying it. In this one movie, you could perhaps say that Reed in the heat, in the, Heat of the moment Whoa. is just strug- he's just stumbling and reaching for a term to say, "Oh God, you're yeah. going to go supernova!" Just calm, you know. You can kind of make that excuse for the movie. The comic books have got no excuse; they've been using it for, for <laughs> decades, and it it is wrong because it people he's not he's not he could not destroy the world. Well, I'm just looking at and Kelvin at the moment. I'm, I'm looking at Kelvin, and it's four thousand Kelvins. Is three thousand seven hundred twenty-six point eight five degrees Celsius. That's a bit more than wow. boiling a kettle. That's I mean, that would say. Oh, that's very close. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's very oh, very four thousand Kelvin. Very close today. Oh dear. Yes, <laughs> I might have to take my cardigan off. Oh, yeah. I think you, I think you'll take your skin off with that with that temperature. Jeez, uh, that's a Not very right that. that uh, that's that's insane. Not more than my nan strong. Oh, so she still have the heating on. Will she still have the heating on? Oh, I'm not going to turn the heating off. House will get cool. It's four thousand oh. Kelvin then. Yeah, but the house will get cool. <laughs> Don't let the heat out I'll the just, window. Close just, the window. I'll just crack a window. Yeah. <laughs> so, are the powers the same in the comic books? Then, I mean, are there any discrepancies? Mm. Are they exactly the same as they were? Drum roll, please. Sort of, but not really. Not really. Oh god! <laughs> I haven't used that catchphrase in ages. So, two of them are very like Reed and um, Johnny are, are pretty much exactly the same. Mm. Sue only has invisibility to begin with, and 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 that proves to make her quite a limited character. Yeah, in, in, a, in a superhero story and in fight scenes and stuff. So, three years down the line in the comic books, they introduced this idea where she developed different powers. Like, her cosmic radiation mutation grows. And so, she can turn other objects invisible. And she can turn other people invisible. To begin with she would have to take off her clothes to go invisible, like we see in that awesome scene in this movie. Um, <laughs> uh, so she needs the the costume, which is made of unstable molecules, so will mm. turn invisible with her. But then three years down the line, she can like turn you invisible, or she can turn the thing you're holding invisible, or she can... Which is very useful in a combat situation. Um, if you can't see your gun, you can't get your gun. If you're trying to activate a death ray from a control panel and she makes the control panel disappear, that's quite useful. And she can kind of do things like that. If you want to uh, sneak up on someone, you know what's really good? An invisible Ben Grimm. (laughs) Because all of a sudden, something's pounding your face in. So she becomes... That becomes a great tactical ability. And at the same time, she gets this, this kind of... Invisible force fields power, which I've always thought, I don't know, man. Even as a kid, it kind of bugged me because it doesn't seem mm. in any way connected 
to being invisible. Force fields are usually invisible. I, yeah. How is that connected to being invisible? Is it just because they're invisible? Because if so, couldn't it be like invisible laser beams? Like what? Anyway, <laughs> so they to begin with, she doesn't have that kind of stuff. She just has the invisibility, and she's. They have to keep. It becomes harder and harder to write ways for her invisibility to be helpful. The mm. thing, uh, you check your messages right now, buddy. The thing is not made of rocks to begin with. So, okay. To begin with, if you can make that that image big, he's meant to be is, is a it, dinosaur yeah. type man. He's got right. this rough orange lumpy hide so he's got lumps and bumps on his hide but they're not rocks yeah. he's meant to be a dinosaur creature as the artwork progressed in the 60s Jack Kirby worked with various different inkers um, so in the way the comic books work Jack Kirby is the penciler the artist, the penciler mm. and he draws in pencil everything and then an inker comes in and the inker uh, to use the words of Chasing Amy, had shade and def- definition uh, by inking over. It will create shadows and the concept of light and dark. Yep. So different inkers that worked on his pencils, they added heavier shading to the lumps and the bumps on the dinosaur skin. And the more shading and darkness you added, the more the lumps and the bumps started to look like rocks. And he started to look like someone covered in rocks and after about two years Jack Kirby like really got into this idea and started to lean into it and so he really liked how the orange rocks looked and so he started to draw the thing as a guy made out of rocks which is what we now know him as but that was like a two year progression from dinosaur skin to rocks and this change in appearance Mm. then they explained in subsequent stories to be a bit like how Sue suddenly gains new powers two years down the line they kind of said oh well that's that's Ben that the cosmic mutation was still changing him so underneath Ben's rock skin sorry not rock underneath the rocks he still has this rough dinosaur hide of the original from the first two years and then he's grown these rocky exterior over the top so yeah, that's that's how those two powers changed. Wow. Okay, I, I always wondered if it was supposed to be rocks or something because it just seemed a bit weird to have like be covered yeah. in rocks like that organically. Yeah. So, thing gets his heart broken. Ben returns home to see his fiance Debbie, but she cannot handle his new appearance and flees. He goes to brood on Brooklyn Bridge and accidentally causes a traffic pile-up while stopping a man from committing suicide. The four use their various powers to contain the damage and prevent anyone from being hurt. While the public cheer them for their efforts, Ben sees his fiancée leave her engagement ring on the ground and run. Reed hands a heartbroken Ben the ring and vows to find a way to turn him back to normal. The media dubs them the Fantastic Four for their efforts. Victor watches the new story and is told that his company is lost now. The group's vain overriding the company's fate with the media. 
being mobbed by reporters and the general public whenever they go outside, the four move into Reed's lab in the Baxter building to study their abilities and find a way to return Ben to normal. Victor offers his support in the efforts in their efforts, but blames Reed for the mission for the mission's failure. The light flickers as he grows enraged. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's that's revealing. So, uh, how heartless is Ben's now ex-wife? That is just even <laughs> after his good deeds, she's there. She's there going. I'm in public. I'm in front of all these people, and I'm going to signify divorce proceedings the most callous way possible. Even more callous than your skin, mate. Oh, <laughs> who's, who's the real calloused, horrible creature in this marriage? It's not Thing. It's this horrible ex-wife. I like that they immediately managed to get all of New York on board with these monst- with this monster man and these weird yeah. people by having them post 9-11 save some firefighters <laughs> in New York. I mean, that will do it, right? That will... There's no... There's no one's going to boo you after that. No. And it feels no. a little bit like she's... If you're, if you're going to break up with a guy after he sells, saves some firefighters in 2005, it seems like you're on the side of Osama Bin Laden, my friend. That's what <laughs> I believe. Secret ISIS agent right there. Yeah, uh, bloody hell! Yeah, that's oh. that's 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 not from that's not from the comics. He doesn't he doesn't come home to a to a, a fiance or a wife or anything. But it's it's rough, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's rough. It, it makes you feel for the character. That's that's why I love the character even more because he's the one with genuine loss here. He's the one shouldering the burden while everybody's going. I can fly, I'm on fire, powers. stretch my arms, yeah. I can turn. He's got power. What did I get? I am a rock. <laughs> I look yeah. horrible. But obviously he's got his... I don't have ears anymore. <laughs> yeah. How, <laughs> or maybe even a penis. Who knows? How do uh, I poop? Is it made of rocks? Oh, now I've got an image of him pooping. Oh, yeah. no. That's not going to go away for a good 10 days. So, I don't know. I, I, I felt like we had a discussion about this before the podcast because uh, we both, we, I, I, I have a feeling it's going to be me uh, offering an opinion and then you telling me I'm wrong and then me coming part of the way. You stop rubbing your eyebrows and dancing. <laughs> so some of the scenes with Ben Grimm did, did, did actually make me laugh, but I, I did feel some of the tone of the film was a bit goofy. But you had a great explanation for this. Well, yeah, well, yeah you're, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say it's silly. I wouldn't mm. say it's a silly film, you know. Um, but but I think it, it, it carries a tone. It, it's very, very, very much made for families to, to yeah. go to. Yeah. It is not like X-Men 2 or... So, Batman Begins is, came, comes out just before this movie. Yes. Oh, no, no, 2005. Com- it was the same, same year, wasn't it? Same year. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but it comes... I mean, it comes, out month, it comes out weeks or months before this movie. Oh, wow, okay. Um, think about that. Think about the darkness of Batman Begins. I think Batman Begins is directly responsible for the negativity this film receives. <laughs> because 
it, it it was like this is what we want from this is what we want from these movies. We want darkness and we want grit and we want we want who who are you? I bam and we want someone violating civil Where rights. Are the <laughs> Yeah, that's that's apparently what we want, and and yeah. this came with what, to my mind, is like a nineteen the nineteen seventies Superman tone. Mm, yeah, where it's it, it, it but it it's it's I listen, I, I I'm not I don't want to push this card too much, right? I'm a professional writer of comedy. That's how I make my bread. That's how I make my butter. I'm telling you, this film is funny, right? It's not hilarious, but it is witty. It has really, it, ha- it has jokes that are that are decently written and well performed. There is a wit to to a lot of the scenes. They're constructed in a funny way. It, it carries that comedic tone that is possessed mm. in the Christopher Reeve Superman films. Yep. It is not dark, but it has pathos, and it's not, you know. Outlandishly, it doesn't have violence, but it has action. I think it has. It carries that seventies Superman tone to it. Um, yeah, yeah, goofy. I don't think. I don't think you're, you're you're wrong in saying that. I just. I don't. I don't think it's necessarily silly. And I think had it arrived right after X Men, yeah, or had it arrived right after Spider Man One, had it not had had X Men Two, Spider Man Two, and Batman Begins. Like weeks before it came out, I think it perhaps would have been received a little a little differently. Um, no, no, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. I I like what you said about there with the Superman tone because I remember rewatching the Christopher Reeves films uh, a handful of years ago, and that was after seeing Man of Steel, which again was the we've got to be gritty and stuff. And I remember yeah. enjoying the Christopher Reeves film more because there was heart yeah. to it; it was entertaining. Because Man of Steel so, wasn't entertaining. What 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 was really interesting in researching and looking into this is is that I found comments from Avi Arad, who is a very high muckety book at Marvel at the time mm. and still is with the. Well, he might have left now, but he was for a long long period of time. He's one of the guys behind getting Marvel Studios together, the MCU, yeah. and Iron Man, and everything. And he said that he always envisaged the Fantastic Four. As a superpowered sitcom, and ah. that—I I don't think this is as, as funny as a sitcom, but I think yeah. that's part of why they hired Tim Story, the di- whose biggest hit is what Barbershop and Taxi with Queen Latifah and and, mm. and Jimmy Fallon, which is the, that, that the Taxi was a big movie that he did around that time, and Barbershop obviously lives uh, infamously and has so many more. Uh, sequels and things, and and that's kind of why they went in that comedy, comedy action slash comedy adventure direction. Yeah, um, and and I think that that colours the film quite quite a lot. And I can remember, I'm not, um, I'm not, uh, my hands aren't clean on this one. I can remember 2005. This is not what I wanted from a superhero film. I wanted, yeah. I wanted it to be. Spider-Man 2 was about as light as I wanted it to be. X-Men 2, yeah. Spider-Man 2. I wanted it to be. Because because superheroes and comic books have been relegated to being kiddie children things for so long, I wanted mm. people to go, no, it could be there could be blood and violence and ah, 
beating people up. That's why I kind of I wanted to kind of come out of the closet and be able to say <laughs> to people, no, it can be like die hard but with powers or something. Um, so I, I was kind of yeah. guilty of viewing this film as not quite enough. I, I'm kind of glad they, they're, they're moving away from gritty stuff. I know we get on a bit of a tangent, but I'm loving this. I, 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 I don't worry, the tangent will be over in a sec. I, I, I'm glad <laughs> that the MCU have really shown the way that you can have a bit of darkness in there, but keep it ultimately jolly and entertaining to watch. And I like the, the way it's done, because I think the period of gritty, dark superhero films, I think they, 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 it's, 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 it's passe now. You can't do them. You can't do them anymore. Listen, it, 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 once once we get enough people interested, we'll do Marvel versus Marvel DCU edition, Ooh. and uh, we'll we'll take on we'll take on Batman versus Superman and Justice League, and uh, and see what we think about them. That'll be fun. I, I'd be interested in doing in combating the uh, Batman movies as well, because you know how I feel about Batman. I'm a big big Batman fan. Big Batman fan. Anyway, I've got other things to say. We also get Stan Lee cameo <laughs> playing a mailman called Willie. That's a thumbs up from well, me. Well, that's 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 interesting because this I might this might be the one and only time Stan mm-hmm. Lee is playing an established Marvel cam- character in his cameo. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. The the Fantastic Four's mailman Willie Lumpkin is a real character in the comic books. <laughs> He's a recurring character, and that's who he's playing here. He he first appeared delivering the Fantastic Four their fan mail in 1963, mm. and he's been a comic relief character cropping up ever since. He, at times, gets caught up in all the battles and the action when he goes to the Baxter building, and he briefly dated Aunt May. Um, what? For a period of time. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that would make sense. They look around the and, same age. And... and Willie Lumpkin is so weird. When he first arrived, he looked nothing like Stan Lee. Looked nothing like Willie Lumpkin because it's 1963. Yeah, 2005. Stan Lee has turned into Willie Lumpkin, <laughs> so he can get <laughs> cast as him. And and he's um, Stan Lee had a um, had a newspaper strip in a local newspaper, and that's where this mailman Willie came from. And then he decided to throw him into the Fantastic Four in the 1960s. So it's a really odd little little cameo, a very nice one. A very good cameo. Speaking of fan mail, uh, they immediately become celebrities here, don't they? they there's no build-up. They immediately become celebrities and are chased by paparazzis and fans. I mean, is that something that was invented for the film to seem relevant? It feels like it, doesn't it? It feels like let's make them yeah. the, the, the modern Kardashians. Let's make them superpowered Kardashians of the moment. Like what would what would E Entertainment News Channel say about them? What would <laughs> what would all of that kind of feel? But it's 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 there in the comics. It's one of the things that makes the Fantastic Four stand out from any of the older crop of pre-war mm. heroes and from from the other Marvel characters of the sixties. They become celebrities. Now, for the first three issues, they're kind of presented uh, in, in, with more ominous tone, in, in like they're sci-fi monsters, a bit like Hulk and a bit mm. like Iron Man. Remember that first that first Iron Man issue? We talked about how he burns the Viet Cong to death, and he looks like a he looks like a monster coming out of the darkness, and he doesn't seem like a superhero. They're kind of presented in in that 
ominous fashion for three issues. But then after three issues, it all changes. They do something very public with a villain, and and they become media darlings. Yeah, the, the, their identities are public. Everyone knows them. Knows what they look like. They're on the cover of magazines. Everyone knows where they live. That the, the the building they live on on Madison Avenue in the heart of Manhattan. <laughs> the public adores them. Um, Sue is on the cover. You know, fashion magazines always want to know what what Sue is wearing and and what her hair is like. And it's it's and when they walk down the street, it's the opposite of Spider Man. Everyone knows them and loves them, rather than Spider Man swings in the city and goes, "Get out of here, you web-headed freak! <laughs> they heard you calling up traffic." Um, it, it 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 does help that. Reed's inventions make them very, very wealthy. So there is that that thing that you get, like with the Kardashians, where what is really pulling us in? Is it is it just that we have this fawning kind of adoration for wealth? Is it that America, at various times in pop culture, is crying out for a royal family of some kind? You know, and is that what draws them? What draws the people in? But yeah, they are. It really is a. They they have a wedding which we'll get maybe we'll get to in the in the, in the next movie, and and that's like the biggest. It's the biggest celebrity wedding of all time. <laughs> Hello magazine and Newsweek and whatever they're all covering Sue and Reed getting getting married. So yeah, celebrity is a big big part. Yeah. They do something quite interesting with it that in, in modern storytelling. I think this is Mark Wade, but I'm not a hundred percent on that. Some writer, it might be Mark Wade, he's a very, very smart, long-term Marvel writer, brilliant, brilliant writer, and he wrote the Fantastic Four for a nice little run. He um, has Reed Richards reveal that the celebrity was intentional. He manipulated it from the start. Because as soon as they got powers, his big fear was that they would be swept up by some military organisation and imprisoned and dissected and or their rights would be taken away or so he immediately went on the PR offensive we are the Fantastic Four I am Mr. Fantastic we are superheroes we have matching costumes and we're adventurers and this is who we really are and put all those spotlights on us put all those cameras on us put us on the cover of everything no one can do anything to us clandestinely we are here (laughs) we are definitely superheroes and he was like explaining that that was like a protective shield he wanted to throw over them to stop like i don't know the cia or whoever from coming in and being like we need to clandestinely take you all apart and make you work for us and stuff and i thought that was a really a really neat little uh twist and explanation on their on their celebrity I I I think that works really well. I because I, I, usually it's like oh superheroes must keep their identity secret to save their loved ones. It's like yeah. no no out in the public yeah. so everybody knows everybody knows they're all right. Well, that's the big fear in, in the nineteen eighties when uh, John Byrne revamped um, and rebooted Superman um, for the first time with Man of Steel in the comic mm. books. He uh, part of the big big fear that motivated his secret identity. Was was there from Mar and Pa Kent, and it was if the government find out you're an alien, you'll be whisked off to some mm. somewhere, and no one will ever hear from you again, and they'll dissect you, and they'll 
they'll try and work out how you, you know, they'll cut yeah. you up. That's why you have to hide. Not that someone could hurt you, and you could probably protect all your loved ones. You're freaking Superman, but like you'll just you'll they'll never let you go. And yeah, and I think that yeah, so that that kind of especially when it's anything to do with a alien type stuff, you know. Indeed. So. Batafans, as it thought, the Baxter building is the major location for a lot in this movie. Is there anything we should know about it? I mean, is it a real place? <laughs> it's well, it's not, not, it? well, it's not a real... It's, it's, well, it's a real place in the Marvel Universe, Will. It's a yes. real place in the Marvel Universe. Um, it's a public building on Madison Avenue. Mm-hmm. It's a key, key, real key feature of Fantastic Four stories. Like the amount of times it starts there and ends there and all of that, it's a building that Reed Richards bought with with his uh, fought with his money he gets from all his inventions, and he had it specially fitted out with security features and safety features so that he can do his experiments uh, with, without blowing you know without causing too much mm. distress and prevent villains from attacking. The the lower floors of the building all have tenants and businesses. And Reed Richards is essentially their landlord. And then the upper floors are all Fantastic Four, uh, all their vehicles, all their experiments, and all of all of that stuff. And on the lower floors, there's also a, a visitor centre for tourists to go around. Mm. And uh, the person that leads the tours is often Herbie from the 1970s <laughs> Hanna-Barbera cartoon. He is written in. He's in this movie. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a scene yeah. coming up where they're in the Baxter building and on the shelf there is a white robot which is... which is They built a Herbie kind of prototype. I, um, I remember seeing that. I think I recognised it and I was like, ah, I, that, vague, yeah. that vaguely rings a bell. In, in the 1980s, Doctor Doom's evil son launched the Baxter building into space. Uh, and Reed Ooh. had to build a, a a brand new headquarters, and then that was teleported into the negative zone, and it had to be rebuilt again. It's a very expensive being the Fantastic Four. Um, it's a good job Reed's got this money because it, it it's very expensive. It housed the Future Foundation, which is a really great concept come up with by Jonathan Hickman, which is the Fantastic Four's school, unusual school for gifted children. A little bit like the the X Men school, yeah. But they're not they're not mutants. Um, they have like so they have you know some of the mole people from under the earth who are very smart, and they have the smartest people from Wakanda, and they have the smartest people from Atlantis, and the smartest people from the Negative Zone. All these places that the Fantastic Four kind of discovered for the first time they kind of have like an outreach program send us your best kids and we'll teach them science um, and for a, a, a brief period of time when the Fantastic Four were presumed dead, Peter Parker bought the Baxter building and turned it <laughs> into the headquarters of Parker Industries um, which was a interesting time yeah, that sounds it because we're so used to seeing Peter in poverty. He can't. He can't go around buying buildings. He hasn't. He hasn't got that kind of cash. Maybe. Maybe one day we'll do the end of Dan Slott's uh, Spider-Man run. We'll touch on Peter Parker becoming the new Tony Stark and Ooh. the return of, well, not the return of, but the debut of the Red Goblin, 
uh, that might be something that we dance with one day. Who knows? Who knows? Okay. Anyway, back to the film. Reed has a plan. Reed tells the group he will construct a machine to recreate the storm and reverse its effect on their bodies, but warns it could possibly accelerate them instead. Meanwhile, Victor continues to mutate, his arm turning into an organic metal and allowing him to produce bolts of electricity, and he begins plotting to use his new powers to take his revenge. While stuck in the Baxter building, Johnny plays pranks on Ben, pushing his buttons and driving him up the wall. Sick of being trapped inside, Johnny causes a public scene at a motocross event, showing off his powers and giving TV interviews. He publicly names them all, The Human Torch, Mr. Fantastic, The Invisible Girl and The Thing. Reed, Sue and Ben confront Johnny about using his powers and acting so recklessly. Ben destroys Johnny's car and they get into a bitter fight about his selfishness and name-calling. Uh, I would like to point... I, I know you've been saying this is a family friend, family film. Uh, Victor blows a hole open through someone's chest. That was yeah. a bit, that was yeah. That was very dark. That's very violent. I, I don't know if that was on the cinematic uh, release I, uh, what, what I've seen on Disney Plus is very much the uh, DVD release and there's a, a couple of alterations I'm, I'm told um, but yeah whether we would have seen it or not and, and the on the original I don't know That's, yeah. that, would, that would make sense because that shot of a guy with his chest open with a hole through him yeah. it's like ooh, ooh ooh you just that goes into 12A territory my friend but Uh, it's it's true it's true you you get you get down there it's like oh my god you're restricting your views you're not getting as much money uh so the motocross scene china won't be happy china will not be happy (laughs) that's a that's a weird thing to think about the chinese market i love the south park episode they did about that maybe it's why all comedies are all Major comedy movies are terrible now. You will never get anything like Anchorman or Beverly Hills Cop or anything like that anymore because you cannot go near these topics anymore because it won't play in China. And if it doesn't play in China, there's no point making the movie. So <sighs> it's it's rough, man. It's you got to if you want a good rollicking comedy, you got to go to these mid-budget ones that are never intended to be. They're not going to have Will Ferrell in or any of these big stars. You got to go to like your. Um, Book Smart, which is a great comedy, or or um, the Good Boys and things like that, who might might do kind of sex topic jokes and anyway, anyway, Get, getting deep into film there, but that's 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 eye opening. Listen, for me. The, the, the first thing we said in this episode was commies. Well, I'm not lying. I ain't, I ain't backing away from it. They influence the space race. They influence the movie race. <laughs> Oh dear, the military, uh, the comedy industrial complex, we'll call it. So, uh, <laughs> hey, there we go. So the motocross scene uh, was interesting. Uh, I felt like, I felt like what a part of it was mainly so they could fit all the product placing in the film. Uh, it, <laughs> I, and I was like, where could you count part of, I counted quite a few. I was, I was, I always love looking at product placement of films, not because I like the products being advertised, but because I'm, I, I now have that sense of going, ah, 
That's how they make the money. And the amount of <laughs> the amount of effort they have to do to make sure like, oh, this is gonna be in, in the product. Are we okay with your product being there? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. like all I can think of is the film Repo Man where they purposely went out of their way to not put any products in. <laughs> um, it was a good one that but anyway, so it was it was probably the most expensive way of coming up with the names of the story. I thought like they they, they could have done this in, in any way possible, but they went no. Let's film this in a motocross stadium and get someone to do stunts just to provide that function to the narrative. Uh, and yeah. yeah, but it, it does also kind of it, it, it's a it's a great um, it's a great character building thing of of Johnny. You know, if you if you. If the snowboarding scene and the motorcycle at the start scene hadn't done it already, this kind of nails the idea of Johnny and the idea of celebrity as well, which is which is kind of an a, a, it's a dynamic. The X Men. I mean, if you were to if you were to put one scene together to say how are you different from the X Men, it would be that. It would be this kind of thing. The X Men have yeah. to hide. And the Fantastic Four can be on TV at a big sporting event going, okay. I'm Johnny Storm, the Human Torch. So maybe okay, there's something there. That's, yeah. there. Yeah. No, that's, that's a very good point. But it, is exp- it, is, it is expensive. Oh, it is expensive. Expensive scene. But that's, that's, that's why all the product placement was there, including a bit where he, he, he goes on fire a bit and he's next to a flame grill Whopper Burger King sign. And I thought... That's oh, so good because it it burns yeah. it burns the burns. <laughs> flame grills the whopper sign. Uh, I really, know that's like the best. That's the best product placement I've ever seen. I I, I like clever product placement like that because it goes beyond a shameless cash in and goes no, yeah. it's part of the film. But uh, also in this uh, scene, the thing becomes more of a tragic figure each time. He's really upset and he crushes his. I like I like when he crushed his car. That was very satisfying. Yeah. Just to see, so he crushed a car into a ball. <laughs> so, there's great dynamic between Ben and Johnny. Uh, is that something taken from the comics? Oh, yeah, a hundred percent. The the early comics, especially, are full of it. Johnny is an absolute brat, um, and and Ben is Ben is depressed. And he's grumpy, and he's you know they, they just they, they get each other back and forth constantly always arguing and insulting each other and and Johnny in issue after issue pulls all these pranks and drives Ben up the wall and over the years it, it's become like the playful banter and antics mm. of brothers yeah so yeah. there's a warmth to it because they very much fit into that position of like almost somehow the kids of the family even though Ben's, you know, the same age as Reed and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. in the early comics, it's not playful. It's like, I mean, it, it kind of is a bit, but it's, it, it it's hard to describe. It is genuine sibling animosity, mm. right? That, that is it is it playful a bit, but 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 they are genuinely getting at each other. They are really annoying each other to the point of driving. One of them will drive the other person out of the house to storm off. But then at the end of the issue, they'll be fighting side by side and working together and saving each other. So it, it, it helps exemplify the concept, which is the core key concept of the Fantastic Four, as as one of our one of our listeners wrote in and said, is that the FF are family. 
Mm. Uh, And you don't have to like your family all the time, but genuinely, generally, you're always there for each other. And at the end of the day, you'll always. I mean, I don't like you, but I, you know, you at least you're family, and I don't know who this guy is, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally agree with that. So. In the comic books, is Reed also trying to reverse their transformation? I mean, are their powers harmful, or is it just for Ben's sake? Yeah, other than Ben, no. Um, mm. So Reed, Reed, like he does here, he, he pretty quickly makes a vow to straight away, I'm going to come up with a way of making you human again. And that is a driving force. It's part of why Ben sticks around with the team. Mm. And it, it gives a... Um, like a narrative thread and a ticking clock to every issue. Yeah, he's got to get yeah. this done. He's got to work it out, you know. But everyone else is loving their powers. There are no downsides <laughs> to anyone else. Of course, um, yeah. And, and no one wants shift of them. So, so Johnny especially loves being a being a famous hero, being able to fly. You know, all of that. Sue can turn her. They, everyone else can turn their powers on and off. Mm. It's only Ben that's stuck, and there's no danger associated with their powers. Although way, way down the line, during Matt Fraction's run on the comic, uh, rediscovers that the the cosmic radiation has built up so much they're now dying, and, and the family set off on this grand cosmic adventure to find a way to save themselves. But there's no suggestion that they want to remove their powers during this. It's just. Yeah. We want to save ourselves, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. That's, that's that's actually a proper motivation for survival, not change our powers. So yeah, vo- yeah. Oh, sorry, I thought, I thought that was my cue to start the next bit. Then. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I will go. Von Doom is up to no good. Ben tries to find solace at his old bar, but he can't seem to live a normal life. People stare and laugh or recoil with horror. He can't sit on a bar stool or hold a glass without breaking it. He meets a blind woman called Alicia, who can't see what he looks like, but is fascinated by him. So we only see a little bit of her in the movie, but it, I, I take it Alicia is a character from the comic books. Yeah, um, and she becomes... I mean, she's key because she's Ben's love interest. Hmm. Um, so... One of the early FF villains is called the Puppet Master. He's a very <laughs> weird-looking bald dude who has possession of this special irradiated clay, and and mm. and if he if he builds like a if he carves the clay into like a voodoo-style doll of you, which he is mm. able to do because he's very highly skilled, he he, he can. He can use that to control you and hurt you. He can. Right. Uh, if he makes it walk, you're going to walk. If he makes it uh, <laughs> jump off a thing, you're going to jump off a building. If he starts stabbing it, you're going to die. And and he, the puppet master, uses these puppets to try and take control of the Fantastic Four and use them as his puppets to do whatever he wants. And Alicia Masters is the puppet master's adopted daughter. Um, blinded by an mm. early experiment with radiation that he did that went wrong. And she doesn't quite know what he's doing, and then she starts to work it out. And when she realizes her, uh, what her dad's doing and he's doing something very evil, she turns against him and helps the Fantastic Four. 
and 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 then becomes a, like a friend of the family. Um, and she's a, a sculptress despite being blind. And she works with clay and with stone, and and she paints. And she gains mm. a lot of trendy New York notoriety. You know, a bit like Warhol and those kind of loft, those village loft yeah, figures of the sixties. Yeah. And, and she falls in love with Ben, and is embarrassed and ashamed about how he looks, but she loves his soul, which she gets, she takes on really mm. quickly, and they begin a relationship. Alicia, you know, fleeting in this, she saves the entire world from Galactus. She forever changes the course of Marvel history. She, her actions save countless worlds. Uh, but that's a story for the sequel, um, to go into more detail there. There is a heartbreaking time with her when Ben mm. is off on an alien world for a long quite a period not a long but for a bit of time and when he comes back in his absence alicia has begun a relationship with johnny storm and the thing is devastated when he when he discovers this um and it proved so unpopular with readers that the writers changed the story and they they revealed that oh that's not really alicia Alicia's been replaced by a shape-shifting scroll to spy on the Fantastic Four. Uh, well, sorry about that. Just pretend it didn't. Just pretend it didn't happen. No. I. She's played here. Is it? Um. Is it Kerry Washington? Is it Denzel Washington's? Yeah. Uh, daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't. I don't know, about, other... I don't know about Denzel's daughter, but yeah, Kerry Washington. I, I think I read up on I think she is. I'm not sure. I'd have to double check. But I, I. I think. I think she was also the other film I've seen her in was Django Unchained. The Quentin Tarantino film. Yeah, she's the star of Scandal. I big, never saw big that. Big American TV series. Yeah, big American uh, TV series Scandal. She's the star of that. Cool. I'll check that out. So, back to the film. Victor drives a wedge between Ben and the group, telling Ben that Reed has no desire to change himself back, as the group's research has allowed him to rekindle his relationship with Susan. Reed and Ben argue... Reed says the machine he's built is untested and could be dangerous. Ben gets enraged and Reed has to use his stretching powers to subdue him. Ben walks out in a rage and this motivates Reed to use the machine on himself without testing it properly. But the machine doesn't work and he cannot generate the power needed. So a lot of tension here between Ben and Reed, despite them being friends. Is that something created for the movie? Oh, well, Ben has tension with everyone. He's he is depressed, man. He's got he's yeah. miserable. He's angry, and a lot of that is directed at Reed because it's there's no getting around it. It's Reed's fault. Um, yeah. In the in the early comic, in the original origin, it, it's Reed's haste and ambition and negligence that creates the accident. And everyone else comes out of the accident fine with a new cool power. But to your point, Ben comes out of the accident a freaking monster with no no human life left for him whatsoever. So, yeah, he's, he, he possesses a lot of this anger. And there's this tension between, you know, why aren't your solutions to turning me back? Why aren't they working? And there's also tension because Ben is attracted to Sue. Um, and she's really sweet to him, and, mm. and and now he's this absolute monster. 
and he sees her with this guy who turned him into a monster. So that's difficult, especially early on. So yeah, they're, they're best friends, but there is there is definitely a lot of tension there. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So so back to the film: spying on the team via security cameras and seeing Reed's problems with the machine. Victor tells Ben he can do what Reed can't and cure him. Ben is placed in the machine and Victor uses his abilities to produce the large amounts of power the machine needs, turning Ben back to normal and accelerating Victor's condition. Much of Victor's body turns to metal and he begins to gloat, saying he has made himself more powerful and removed Ben as a threat. Victor knocks the human Ben unconscious and fights with Reed, who uses his stretching powers to try and stop Victor. So, uh, it seems to me, and I don't know if this is reflected in the comics, a large chunk of the superhero movie is about them trying not to be superheroes. Like, they're <laughs> just trying to find a way not to be superheroes. It, it feels like, oh, we could superheroes, we better get back to being normal. Yeah, Ben, ben drives that, yeah. Um, but they're yeah. not... The, the thing about the Fantastic Four is that they're not... They're not... I would... You you would call the Avengers a team of superheroes whose mm. objective is to fight villains and, and, and stop disasters and save the world. The Fantastic Four are adventurers and, and explorers, and that's their driving thing. Yes. Now, yes. through their ex- explorations and their adventures, they keep coming up across injustices and villains and stuff like that and they save people and help things and they obviously you know they do things when the world's in danger but then their driving force is not fighting and combat and saving people and fighting crime is not on their on their radar it's it's reed's got a brand new rocket ship it's going to take us to a different dimension let's go and see what's there oh it's villains there are villains there there are evil monster villains we've got to fight them (laughs) You know, so, um, yeah. But Ben, yeah, definitely wants, wants this all to be over with, doesn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, he, he's, he's, he's got the raw end of it, even though he's quite valuable to the team, to be honest, with his super strength and whatnot. Yeah. So, also, he gets cured here. I mean, Reed's machine cures him. Does that ever happen in the comic books? Does he ever get cured? <laughs> A couple of times, yeah. To, to begin with, um, Reed, it's this joke, it's just kind of an open joke in the comic books that um, Reed Richards is the smartest man in the world. He's he's always portrayed as being smarter than Tony Stark. And that's something that, we, you know, mm. seems seems unimaginable to an MCU fan because Tony Stark's like the, the genius yeah. of, of those movies and Reed's not in them, but... In its growing up, reading comics in the strata of geniuses, Tony Stark was always a good couple of notches beneath, you know, Reed and 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 Doom. Um, mm. So it's kind of an open, an open, ongoing joke that this genius can't can't cure his best friend. That seems really weird. Um, yeah. What 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 they discovered is that because Reed kept coming up with these solutions and they and these cures, and they wouldn't they wouldn't take. Um, and it's all to do with Alicia Masters. Okay. What they discover is that Ben develops an unconscious resistance to being turned back into a human because he subconsciously fears 
that Alicia, his girlfriend, met him as a monster and prefers him as the thing and mm. and has never met Ben Grimm and doesn't prefer him as that. So his body rejects oh. all these different attempts by Reed to restore him to his human form because he's scared of losing Alicia. Um, there's a couple of times where it's done for him um, uh, and it somehow breaks through that barrier um, and he's replaced on the, on the Fant- in the Fantastic Four by Luke Cage. So you get Luke Cage in the Fantastic Four replacing Ben for a time, which is really fun. Um, during Secret Wars, they all go to a, uh, an alien world called Battle World. Mm-hmm. And on that world, Ben is able to control his transformations between the Thing and Ben Grimm. So when it's combat time, he can turn into a rocky monster. And when it's not, he can be normal again. Um, he, he he does regain his human form completely much later on. But by that time, he's fallen in love with um, someone called Sharon Ventura, who was another rock-type monster creature who was known as the She-Thing um, and was also known as Miss Marvel <laughs> briefly. Uh, because they are both, they were both rock monsters when they fell in love, Ben gives up his humanity so that he can be mo- a monster again because mm. he doesn't want her to be alone. Oh. He doesn't want her to be alone as a monster. So Ben is ruled by by love, um, and he has a lot of insecurities about how he about how he looks. But he's he's yeah he's ruled by whether it's Alicia or Sharon Ventura. He's ruled by 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 romance and by love. Oh, he's he's uh, that's why I love him so much because he's a nice boy. He's a very nice boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so back to the film. Enter Doctor Doom. Victor, now calling himself Doom, dons a metal mask to hide his physical disfigurations and incapacitates Reed using a super cooling unit. Doom fires a heat seeking missile at the Baxter building to try to kill Johnny. Johnny flames on and flies through the city to evade to evade and to lead it away from the Baxter building and other people. He manages to set fire to a garbage barge on the river, setting the fire, setting off the missile off harmlessly. So, again, I don't want to be an, a science nerd about this, but why didn't Johnny just go underwater when being chased by a missile? Well, what would the missile do when it hits water? I think it'd explode. Would it? Would it? I, yeah. I, you'll either explode or just sink. Because unless he's managed to engineer a missile that's also a torpedo, which which I highly doubt he has, smartest man in the world. Uh, I, I I would hmm. I would if I'm if I'm Johnny, I don't want it chasing me anymore. I want it. I want to point at something, set fire to it, and the missile yeah. to go over there. That's okay, what, okay. I don't I don't want to take the risk that it's going to blow up on the water and. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I no, you're right. You're right. It, it, it's all about distraction, not about let's take a chance to see if he can go underwater as well. I tell you what, I could have done with. I could have done with a line of dialogue about how Johnny's. We saw it earlier on in the movie. It does track, but Johnny, even when he's not flaming on, his core temperature is really high. Hmm. I could have done with a line of dialogue reminding me of that because otherwise, why not just flame off? Oh yeah, he's caught a course, yeah, because his heart rate's all over the place as well, isn't it? 
Something like that. Yeah, it does make yeah. sense that he's hotter than the people around him, so the missile will hit him. But I kind of think we need to, the audience needs to be reminded of that. Uh, yeah, otherwise they're going to go, just maybe, flame off. Or, or a line of dialogue that says, because they don't say, Johnny, you've got to lead it away from or the, the general public. He just flies off. You know, we, we perhaps yeah, need maybe, to... Maybe they t- yeah. Have maybe a reason a risk for why he's... Ah, peep, peep, peep. Yeah. People yeah, would have realised maybe. They would, ah, people figure it out. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Also, uh, I think this is probably the best time to talk about it. Let's talk about Doctor Doom. What are your what were your impressions of of Doctor Doom from this film? <sighs> I mean, I didn't have that much impression of him before the film. I, I always Doctor Doom's always been a bit mysterious to me. All I've seen him is is him in a green cloak and the metal mask. And my impressions of this film were greatly underused for a start. I, I think we didn't get to see enough of Doctor Doom until one fight. In fact, I would go ahead and say this is the film's own. The then fight is the film's only fight. I he he didn't seem like a like as you'd say a cackling madman, but there seemed to be something very ah. I'm going to get revenge. Am I going to kill people? You know, and all this. I I didn't understand his motivations that much. I was a bit let yeah. down. Yeah, they did him dirty in this movie. Mm. Um, he, he feels like a uh, just by being a businessman he feels like a very underwhelming Norman Osborn um, that, you know he gets his company taken away from him and that kind of thing there's I think there's something quite interesting in the way that he seems to target the Fantastic Four yeah but that feels like a second movie thing to do. You yeah. haven't established the team yet. You, the, the, the team wasn't even a team yet, and you're already pulling the team apart. Pulling the team apart is the second movie or the third. Yeah. It's yeah. not the first movie. They did what a they Thunderbirds yeah. movie, right? And oh, in yeah. the Thunderbirds yeah. movie, the first live action Thunderbirds movie, they very quickly rushed to show you the Thunderbirds, and then within the first 40 minutes, the Thunderbirds are all incapacitated and blown up and destroyed, and it's up to the Thunderbirds' children to save them. That's oh. not how you do a franchise. <laughs> That's the second movie. <laughs> you have to establish who the people are. X-Men kind of suffers in that way as well, for my yeah. thinking. X-Men and Thunderbirds are very similar. You you get maybe 15 minutes explaining what the X-Men is, and then all of a sudden, they're kind of like it's all falling apart. Anyway... I never. That just so, reminded me. I've never seen the Thunderbirds film. Is it worth watching? Oh no! <laughs> no oh, that's a shame. It's not bad. Uh, ben Kingsley plays the Hooded Claw, or yeah. whatever his name is the Hood. Uh, He's just called the Hood, isn't he? The Hood. Hooded so Claw is Ben Dick Kingsley. Dastardly, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, I, w- I went to cinema when it came out, so I've seen the e- the start of it and the end of it. I would say sixty times. Um, oh, of course. So yeah, I know. Yeah. I think I know. All the words to Busted's Thunderbirds are go. Oh, um, God. Just through cleaning the screens. Anyway. Anyway. Um, Doctor Doom is the most incredible 
and enduring comic book supervillain of all time. Easily the, the, the greatest. It, uh, you, I would... I would. Joker cannot hold a candle to this character. Lex Luthor, oh, that's quite none a state, them. Magneto, none of them. Um, so, so he, he's the king of this European country. And Stanley loved the idea in the 1960s that you could have a villain that was a world leader, and and would therefore have diplomatic immunity, so he could commit crimes in America. But never be arrested. It's a very, it, it, just in that <laughs> kind of idea, it's a very neat storytelling trick because it means you never have to. Yeah. Why is the Joker not in prison forever? Why is Lex Luthor not yeah, in prison yeah. forever? There's an actual reason for why Doctor Doom keep, can keep coming back. And Stan did what Stan does best, and he wrote an arch villain, melodramatic, over the top, supremely. Arrogant, but with a the coolest design, like thanks to Jack Kirby, the coolest costume, the coolest name, and it just became it clicked and it became very very popular. But what is key about Doctor Doom is how he's been built on over the years by subsequent stories, mm. subsequent writers. How his backstory has become expanded to play a key role in his psychology you said a minute ago I don't understand why he's doing this and and so yeah. many writers love Doctor Doom that they have built and built and built on this character this mythology, this psychology to create something truly unique in, in, in comic books so Victor Von Doom is European nobility and we learn um, from his origin stories and later Fantastic Four annuals he studied at Empire State University with Reed Richards and Ben Grimm. He knew them. He was an utter genius, um, and he was preparing an experiment mm. at college. And Reed, one of his classmates, stumbles across his workings and says to him, your calculations are wrong. The experiment is going to backfire badly. You can't carry on with this. And Victor, who is this arrogant nobility from another country and looks down on all Americans like just goes off on him like there's there's he's the most arrogant man in the history mm. of fiction he cannot conceive that he would be wrong he cannot conceive that if even if he made a mistake that someone like Reed Richards would ever be able to spot something he didn't spot so he yeah. goes ahead with the experiment anyway and the experiment blows up literally in his face nearly kills him and scars him horribly and he flees college. He flees America. And, and he goes on this quest, almost like the anti-Batman. Yeah, I was about to say this anti-Batman. This quest yeah. around the world. And, and he finds this secret order of monks. Uh, and he starts to learn these arcane secrets. And he combines it with his own gypsy Romany heritage, where he knows some of that as well. Um, and he forges with these monks this iron mask to hide his disfigured face. Mm. Um and he uses his genius to build this Iron Man type suit of power armor. And then he returns to his home country, Latveria, where he soon becomes king. And this entire time, who does he blame? He blames Reed Richards and Ben Grimm for somehow being involved in the accident, sabotaging it. And, and so he has this vendetta 
against them ever since. He is a Reed Richards level genius. In his very first appearance, we learn he has invented time travel. He's the first human in the Marvel Universe. He's just built a time platform to go back whenever. He has an Iron Man level suit of power armor, which has seen him be able to fight the Hulk and Thor. Um, He rules his own country, so he has vast funds and resources. He has his own army. Um, And he's also one of the greatest sorcerers in the world. When Stephen, when Doctor Strange was appointed Sorcerer Supreme of Earth's Dimension, he was neck and neck with that at that position with Doctor Doom, and and it's only to do with purity of heart and spirit that that Doctor Strange gets the nod, and Doom barely doesn't become the all power, you know, the all powerful, but the Sorcerer Supreme. And Doom has become the first person to combine magic with technology. His his the AI in his suit of armor can automatically run complicated spells in a tenth of a second <laughs> on like a computer program. And I yet, like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and yet he adheres to a code of honor um, at all oh, times. Yeah. He will keep his he'll keep his word, but he'll keep his exact word. Which yeah, may or may not be beneficial. A lot like the devil in, in a yeah. lot of fiction. Yeah. So if, if, if Doom swears he will not harm you, that only means he will personally not harm you. <laughs> it does not mean someone else cannot harm you. Um and his people love him. Latveria love him. He's shown to be devoted to the welfare of his of his subjects. And there was a period of time where Latveri was liberated from him. His people revolted because they love Doom. <laughs> He's created a virtual utopia. This this little European country was a crap hole. And then he, with his incredible technology and magics, he raised everyone up. He lifted everyone up out of out of the mire. Um, he 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 once was even shown to lay his soul bare and be judged. By the Panther God of Wakanda, who determined, with no no ability of deception, determined that Doom genuinely wished for a utopian future where humanity thrived, albeit one where he was in power, and it kind of didn't matter who he had to crush to achieve it. <laughs> so there's there's this this duality to to him. Um, at, at one point in the 1970s, Kirby drew his interpretation of what Doom looked like under the mask, his his mm. scarred face that Doom always talks about and will never let anyone see his face. And what Kirby drew was Doom with a perfect face and a yeah. tiny scar on his cheek. And, and it's this slight imperfection that Doom has to hide his face from the world because that to, to Kirby that was the motivation Doom's vengeance against the world because others are superior because they don't have a slight scar and how can they and, and that was that tiny scar to him is mutilation beyond acceptance because Doom is arrogance impersonified he is just <laughs> the most awful egomaniac you know and and it's it's always 
his pride and, and ego and arrogance that are always his undoing. I mean, he stole the Silver Surfer's power um, in, in the Secret Wars and was, you know, stole power from Galactus's ship and had enough cosmic power to kind of rival any creature in the universe. But he always undoes himself in the end. Reed will. Reed Richards will happily admit that Victor is smarter than him. Reed has got no problem admitting that. But it's always that it's humanity that causes him to fail. Um, and interestingly, Reed will never stop trying to redeem Victor, ever. He does feel... Reed feels genuinely guilty that he didn't do more to stop Re, uh, Doom's accident. So he always feels responsible for kind of this dark path mm. to some extent. And so he, he never he never wants yeah. to stop trying to give Victor a, a second chance. He's a fascinating, fascinating character that again, from from a very cliched supervillain trope, yeah. was expanded and expanded and grown and, and the psychology laid into him and built and developed so much better than the Joker, I am crazy. <laughs> I might love anarchy. I might love anarchy, but there's not actually quite a lot to support that in the text. Waka waka. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, uh, fantastic. That that sounds a lot better than a Joker because, as you know, I'm a big Batman fan, and I, I I do I do like the whole thing of Joker being like ah, it's the antithesis of order, but that's about it. He's skin deep, and that's about it. There's no depth to him. Not like what the you just Joker... told me. Yeah, that chaos and anarchy thing is very much a movie invention. It's it's it has no basis in, in in the original or any of the modern kind of. I mean, since, subsequently since Nolan's Batman, they've started to do that with him, but mm. it's not taken from a source point. The Joker to me works as a palate cleanser. <laughs> like he, he 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 can't he can't exist on his if it's if everything is just a joke if everything is just pointless directionless craziness mm. he gets very old very quickly yeah when you have the riddler with his logic puzzles and the penguin with his uh, you know crime and 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 two-face with his twisted logic and when you have all of these different characters with all of their different motivations to have a character who has no motivation is really refreshing and exciting but if you keep banging that drum, that's the drum you can't bang very often. You yeah. can bang Two Face often. You can bang Uwe misses. You can, <laughs> you can run out Two Face stories, and you can find different interpretations for these different methodologies and these different psychologies. But having no psychology is one you can only really do every now and then yeah. because it, it, it's only a positive in its um, in its contrast. I find Wolverine the same. Wolverine's only really a positive in his contrast to Cyclops, in his contrast to a regular hero that kind of has a regular motivation and a regular sense of justice. That's that's a good explanation. So yeah, a bit off topic at the end there. No, no, no. I I, I now want to look more into Doctor Doom. Now he sounds like a really good character. Well, you can't. You're not allowed. Yeah. All right then. Anyway, meanwhile, at the Baxter building, Susan rushes to the Baxter building. She uses her invisibility to sneak in and free Reed, and then battles Doom with her force fields. Sue is overpowered by Doom, and things look bleak for the team. Ben sees his friends in trouble and regrets being unable to help. 
He uses Reed's machine to dose himself with cosmic gas and once again becomes the thing. He attacks Doom and the battle spills into the streets. Ben, Sue, Reed and Johnny all come together to try and stop Doom. Reed directs Johnny to use his heat to go supernova while Sue and her force fields use her force fields to surround Doom and contain the heat. Doom is trapped inside a swirling inferno as Ben and Reed douse him with cold water. Reed explains that Doom's metal body goes into thermal shock and freezes into place. So this, as I said before, this was the only fight scene in the film. This is the only time I've seen the fight. And it's easily the best bit for me. Uh, It showed four superheroes working together perfectly. And this was before the Avengers I mean, we've talked about the Avengers yeah. having to have scenes where you're thinking, oh, you've got to choreograph what they're doing because everything's happening at once. This, they did really well. I think this is the film, for me, the I, film Saving Grace. I, I, I think we could have done with a lot, with a, with, with a longer, a much longer fight. Or oh, yes. Much longer. Doom, Doom could have had some, like, minions or someone for them to, like, battle against that isn't just Doom. It also benefits hugely from being at night. Like, it made me realise the rest mm. of this movie is a little bit overlit. Um, yeah. But the rest of this fight, this fight being outside at night time in New York, and it just feels... they, they the, the costumes look better. The, the, the way they stand and where they move look kind of lit, lit better. In the harsh, kind of overlit light of a bright, sunny day, it mm. kind of dampens things down a bit. Um, so I, yeah, they could have had a yeah. It's a great, it's a good, it's a good fight scene though. Yeah, I, I agree. I would have loved more of it from this film. I would have happily watched another twenty minutes of fight, <laughs> or so, another ten minutes maybe. Yeah, yeah. Also, Doom becoming frozen metal, metal mirrors the very first shot in the movie where we see that big statue of Doom outside his offices. Oh man, that yeah. was quite a clever little nod there. That's a nice bit of foreshadowing at the start of the of the movie. There, uh, you, you kind of yeah, it, it tops and tails the whole the whole thing, doesn't it? The first yeah. the first thing you see is that statue, and the last thing of Doom you see is that statue. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's him. Well, yeah, exactly. So, is this how the Fantastic Four's first adventure goes in the books, or is Doom yet to be Doom? Doom is yet to be Doom. Uh, Doom doesn't show up until uh, to a few issues down the line. They um, they don't spend a long time investigating their powers either. <laughs> they, oh they God! Like the first the first issue is not like all about their powers. They they investigate a series of mysterious cave-ins and sinkholes that seem to be targeting nuclear power plants across the world, and they find a huge prehistoric-looking monster attacking an atomic plant in in some of the world, some other part of the world. And, and discover the underground world of the Mole Man. <laughs> uh, the, the Mole Man is a, a, tortured, a tortured soul who was bullied and, and abused so much by society that he literally ran away and he started to live underground. And he mm. started to, he discovered a, a species of, of monsters long forgotten by humanity, and he becomes their master. Uh, and rules these monsters and sets them loose on the surface world, and that's the, the the Fantastic Four track him down to somewhere called Monster Island, where they all come up onto the surface and they travel underground and stuff. And they they don't so much as, as defeat him as they do trap him underground and kind of just leave him be as long as he doesn't uh, 
attack the surface world anymore. Um, so straight away, it's not just New York, it's not just Manhattan. Mm. That you can see how this is a bridge between the timely comics, 1950s monster comics, yeah, and whatever they're doing that's new. Is this a superhero comic? Sure. But this is packed with monsters, man. Like the, the, the Fantastic Four themselves are kind of monsters. One of them, one of them is a flame monster. The other is a stretchy monster. The other is like a dinosaur monster. And then who are they fighting? They've got underground monsters that are doing all. So it's a, it's very much like an easing. It's kind of like easing into this new idea of yeah. of superheroes by actually having sci-fi monsters running around all over the place. That makes, that makes um, sense. It, it, what what I think, yeah, what I think is really interesting about it is that the first thing that it does to me that Fantastic Four are these explorers that widen and expand the barriers of the Marvel universe constantly. The very first thing they do is show that right underneath your feet there are fantastic things. There's this whole other world because <laughs> they go deep down into the caves and the caverns, and there's this whole world of monsters or or the beasts that live down there, and they live right underneath Manhattan and right underneath Africa and Asia, and so they're already straight away kind of the Marvel universe hasn't really even begun yet, and they're saying this is how it's all so different to where we are. It's really cool. Also, there's two Simpsons references in there. Let's have it. Obviously, they're obviously Mole Man, which is why I giggled because all I can think of, I, I, I think I, I love Hans Mole Man in the Simpsons. Uh, and also, oh, yeah. um, he looks, he monster. does look like Mole Man. He does actually look like Mole Man. Oh, fantastic. And, and also, Let Monster me, Island. You keep talking, I'll monster, bring my picture. Yeah, Monster Island. He goes, was it, for, for, was yeah. it, was it, so Lisa has a nightmare where she's found, I forget the episode now, which is very wrong of me, where it's like, for lying on this, you'll be spanished for a lifetime of horror on Monster Island. It's like, don't worry, it's just a name. <laughs> and it cuts to them running away from Godzilla and a pterodactyl. And he goes, he just said it was a name. And he goes, what he meant to say is Monster Island is actually a peninsula. <laughs> it's, it's a, such a stupid <laughs> joke. Such a stupid joke, but it works for me. Anyway, what are you trying to find for me? You're trying to find the mole man. Yeah, just bring this up. Picture of the Mole Man. Okay. Um, Yeah. Well, when I say he looks like him, (laughs) he's 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 short and squat, and um, he looks feeble, and he's hunched over, and and he's got um, massive glasses on because he's blind. So he does have similarities there, aren't there? Have you sent it over? No, I'm just... Bear with me, I've got a very old computer machine. <laughs> right, I'm getting there. It's all right. I'm getting there. You're getting there. Step by step, I'm getting there. But, mate, you've got to have a big reaction now. The build-up is going on and on and on. Yeah, everybody's, everybody's listening so, at home going, what it, this podcast yeah. is going off the rails, I'm going to cancel my Patreon. Whatever you think of this, you've got to react big. So this is me saying, Mole Man looks like Mole Man. Uh, sent it over. <laughs> <laughs> this is Mole Man crossed with Kanye West with those glasses. He looks like Kanye West. <laughs> he does have Kanye West glasses, yeah. you're right. He oh does, he's got Kanye God. glasses. 
<laughs> he looks. He, does, he, I, I, he looks like a very angry CEO. Because <laughs> look at that hair. Yeah, it's like, he, it's like a Sopranos character. He, he he looks a bit like when um, in Always Sunny in Philadelphia, when uh, when Frank goes back to being the CEO of this company, and they yeah. call him the Walrus, and he's got that slicked back no. hair, and he's he's the short and angry. Warthog. The warthog. That's it. The, the warthog. warthog. Yeah. Oh, that was, that was such a good episode. Anyway, anyway, so we're at the end of the film, and is this the end? Ben informs Reed that he has accepted his condition with the help of Alicia Masters, and the team decide to embrace their roles as superheroes and unite officially as the Fantastic Four. Reed proposes marriage to Susan who accepts and they share a kiss. Meanwhile, Doom's statuesque remains are being transported back to his homeland of Latveria when the Dockmaster's electronic manifest briefly experiences electronic interference. Okay, so does that electronic interference mean anything? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, I, I, I read it as just being... Because Doom... Can interfere with stuff, can't he? He's got electric powers. I just read it as Doom's not dead. Oh, okay. That's exactly what it means. I had a feeling it was that, but it's like, oh, yeah. come on, I can't be that. No, it, it, yeah, it, it, no, I don't think it's like another character or villain or anything. I, I find the, the end really, the, the slow pullback to reveal Latveria written on the ship was real fan service. It was real, it was real mm. like, this is the closing shot of the movie. Like no one, anyone who doesn't read the comics is kind of going to be a bit lost by this, or, or not lost, but like, why? Why was a long picture of a boat sailing away the last thing? But for a fan, it was really cool because it felt, it felt almost like they said, "Yeah, we know he's been crap. We know he's just been like the CEO <laughs> of a company, but in the next one, he's going to be the ruler of his own country, and it's going to be real Doctor Doom," which felt, I don't know. Don't do it then. <laughs> like, just do him. Look, Fantastic Four two should have been the Wrath of Khan. It should have been. That's yeah. when you bring back. That's when you bring Doom in for the first time. First movie. Have the monsters. Have the Mole Man. Have you know <laughs> you, the, the character. The, yeah, the, I agree. The, 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 the antagonists don't have to have too much going on because you've got the powers. That's what the main thrust of the movie is about. And you then the second movie you can dedicate. You can do a Spider-Man 2, a Star Trek 2. You can dedicate it wholly to the personality of this big, bold, new villain. But anyway, anyway. Well, please let us know. Your fi- you've taken us through that movie ably, and we appreciate that. What are your final thoughts on 2005's Fantastic Four? Well, before we had the conversation, after I saw the film... I, I thought it was a strong five out of ten, but now it's a strong yeah. six out of ten. I think there oh. are some. It's it, it, it in its own right. It is a good film, but alongside say Nolan's Nolan's Batman films, uh, the MCU starting out and Spider Man one and two, it doesn't hold up as well, sadly. But there's enough in there it to appreciate. It doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, I, I mean, I, I, yeah, five to six out of ten is is, a, is about bob on really. You know, it's yeah. average to maybe maybe a little above because I really think um, Chris Evans and, and Michael Chiklis did a really fine job in, in those two roles. 
and their interplay was really good and I could really see them I could really see a franchise doing a little bit more with with them yeah um yeah. it felt it it just I can't believe how much of a 1990s film this feels <laughs> like it feels it feels 10 years out of date I I like well, that then, I like that analysis I love it yeah um what can you tell us then, Will, about all the things you've listened to and heard and that the listeners have heard about the Marvel trivia? What would be your your favourite piece from this episode on the Fantastic Four of Marvel trivia? Um, I'm going with the Mole Man. <laughs> I, I know I know it's it's very basic. We didn't go that deep into it, but 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 I think the idea of fighting a guy who calls himself the Mole Man and looks like a very minor character from The Sopranos wearing a cape uh, <laughs> tickles me in all the right places. He's a classic, good yeah, old classic, good old Molly. Yeah. He's a classic. Yeah. Well. That uh, that brings us to nearly the end of the episode. I've got a reading list for you all that are interested, which I get tremendous, uh, not hate mail, but I get tr- a lot of messages if I forget it, which I've only done once, and I'm deeply, deeply sorry. Um, I, I would recommend... Um, there's a, you, can, you can get hold of the Stan and Jack original issues in a, in a big, like, black and white, cheaply produced compendium collection it's called Marvel Essentials you can get Essential Mm. Fantastic Four um, volumes 1, 2, 3 they're black and white so they're not in colour the paper isn't great quality it's it's kind of thinnish but you can read those stories in a very cheap cheap way um, which is Mm. a a great thing to do they're available on on all your your places to get books please use real bookshops and comic book stores and not Amazon Um, or you can check out them on, on eBay and things like that so do do bear in mind though that if you are if you haven't read 1960s literature <laughs> fiction or comic books before it these are these are wonderful ideas these are bright bold ideas but it's not written as i said before it's not written like anything modern is and that might be a bit jarring but they're cheap enough that you're not outlaying a whole heap of money to take a gamble on these you know you can get some of these um, even for second hand for like for like ten uh, to fifteen uh, pounds, so I think that's kind of worth doing. Some of my favourite stories: um, Matt Fraction has got a great run with the Fantastic Four and with a compendium sister title called FF, um, which is how everyone refers to the Fantastic Four. It's about two separate teams. His 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 idea is when we talked about the Fantastic Four are going to go and search for mm. uh, a cure for their illnesses that are killing them. And they are going to, through time travel, they're going to be leaving Earth for four minutes. But they say even four minutes is too long to leave the Earth unprotected. So they put together a replacement team of Fantastic Four to stand in their place. And, and Ant-Man, Scott Lang, which is... Um, uh, what, uh, what What's his character from, 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 from the MCU? Paul Rudd's character, Scott Lang, Ant-Man. Scott Lang, yeah, yeah. He, he leads this new team of, of the Fantastic Four. So Matt Fraction writes two, two, two comics. One featuring the Fantastic Four travelling through time and space together. And the other featuring the replacement team back at home going, it was supposed to be four minutes, where are they? <laughs> and that's got She-Hulk. Uh, so it's Ant-Man, She-Hulk, Medusa from the Inhumans. Um, and um, 
because each member of the Fantastic Four was meant to pick a, a great replacement. So um, Reed Richards picks Ant-Man. Uh, the Thing picks She-Hulk. The Invisible Woman picks Medusa from the from the Inhumans. And Johnny forgets <laughs> forgets <laughs> to do it. And at the very last minute, he asks his girlfriend, who is leaving anyway, can you fill in for me? And she has no powers. She's a rock star. And so uh, you get a really interesting, unique little team. That's a great, that's a great series. Um, Matt Fraction, Fantastic Four, or Matt Fraction, FF. And also, Jonathan Hickman has got a very a long uh, sci-fi-based series. It's a bit long-winded and it's a bit bloaty at places, but it's it's got some really great ideas. And it starts with something that I'm convinced Rick and Morty ripped off. Oh, hello. Because it starts with Reed Richards discovering the Council of Reeds, uh... which is an, inter- an interdimensional council of Reed yeah. Richards from parallel universes that all work together. And then a few years later, we had the Council of Ricks and Rick and Morty. So Hickman's run... Uh, very interesting to start with, and, and kind of light on action to begin with, but it but it but it gets there, and there's some fun stuff to be had there. So that brings us, I believe, to the conclusion of this episode. We thank you for joining us. We know you've got lots of other podcasts that you can uh, choose to spend your time with. We appreciate it. Will uh, give us that Twitch plug one more time. How do we find you? How do you, you find me on www.twitch.tv slash willpreston87 Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays, 6pm Greenwich Mean Time. Yeah. Watch me play video games and make massive banter. Sounds like a whole lot of fun. You can check me out on the BBC iPlayer uh, Festival of the Unexpected. And don't forget, there's bonus full-length episodes over on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Thanks for listening to Marvel vs. Marvel. Please take the time to subscribe, like us, rate us, and hey, why not recommend us to a friend that loves Marvel movies and comics? Don't forget, we've got plenty of episodes in the archive, and please visit us on Patreon. Patreon.